everybody, welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for the week of November 21st, 2023. Happy Thanksgiving to all those in America. I know our friends north of the border have theirs in October. Certainly. Uh, but we're partaking uh, this week. And yeah, it was a solid week, pretty big week. Uh, but overall, I thought it was it was pretty decent. What do you think, Rocky? Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was decent too. There's a well, maybe there's a couple of what I will call maybe a, a stinker here or there, but for the most part, I, I, this is another good week. This is a I probably the two, two weeks in a row. Last week I was really, I was quite happy last week and this week I'm more on the happy side as well. So this is a nice way to sort of end the year. And, and since we, as we've alluded to before, we've, uh, we're fortunate enough that we get some preview copies for the, until the end of, for most of December, I, I can, I am actually, I think we're going to be ending, uh, 2023 on a higher note for DC than last year. So, you know, I get all smiles at this point. <laughs> mostly, mostly smiles. <laughs> yeah, mostly, mostly smiles. Yeah. So uh, let's kick it off with Jay Garrick, The Flash, issue number two. This is from writer Jeremy Adams. Diego Orlatuga is the artist. Luis Guerrero on color. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, you know, got off to a good start last issue. Um, this one, I wouldn't necessarily say it was uh, a downturn, but it felt a little bit more of a transitional issue. We see uh, Judy Garrick trying to sort of settle in to you know modern times, and it's uh, it's that fish out of water kind of story that we've you know all seen time and time again. I will say that it's very you know apparent, and in a way, there's. Um, there's, there's almost the subtext of sadness when you see Jay and Joan Allen and they're worried about their young daughter, you know, she's teenage years, you know, maybe early high school years. And they look so old. They look like, you know, they yeah. should be grandparents, if not great grandparents. And it really <laughs> kind of underlines the fact that, that, you know, they missed out on, on so much of their time with her. Um, so, the, you know, there's that, which is, uh, you know, not not the best when you're supposed to be kind of upbeat DC, what have you. But, you know, it is what it is. This is the sort of the, the timeline and the, the storyline that they set up. So overall, it was enjoyable. You know, it's Jeremy Adams, so it's relatively lighthearted. Uh, the Orlatuga art is, is really strong, especially in the action scenes. Um, but he does have a little bit of a thicker line than I might uh, necessarily – like in a flash comic only because when you're dealing with characters that have super speed as their power, uh, a thinner line helps to make it feel lighter and it makes things feel like they're moving faster and a little more kinetic. Um, but I will say that the, uh, the color work over his, uh, over his line work is done very, very well. So that helps sell this feeling of uh, a little bit of timelessness, a little bit of that you know, golden age, classic superhero feel, um, that you get in the book. So a shout out to uh, Luis Guerrero uh, about the colors. So overall, relatively strong. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, I, it's funny you should mention that it's some, uh, sometimes our, our thoughts are on the same path. If there's one thing that I, I was a little surprised by Jeremy Adams here is there, the, I'm surprised. And I know this is only the second issue. So maybe I'm, maybe this is coming, but I, the age of Jay Garrick, Jay and Judy Garrick, uh, Jay Garrick and, and, and his wife, and they're they're so old. I mean, they're they're literally. I mean, Jay Garrick has his age prolonged 
I mean, he, he's he's actually like, he's got to be over 100, really, when you think about it. It's 2023. The guy should be dead. I think the only reason, I think there's an in-story JSA explanation somewhere in DC's past that ex- that there was an adventure that extended the lives of the the ages of the of the members of the Justice Society. I mean, he's, 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 he's old enough not just to be grandpa, but the great-grandpa of somebody who's now his daughter, who suddenly they're just remembering. There is absolutely an element of tragedy to this. And yet, Jeremy Adams does find a way to sort of bring the fun and the joy to this. And so I'll give him that credit, especially with this Robert. Not only are, are the memories that Judy Garrick has of her parents coming back to her more and more, but same same thing that is happen, happening with uh, Garrick, uh, Jay Garrick and his wife himself, themselves. And and not only that, it looks like some of their villains, like the this Robert character is is also coming back. So there's there's a rewriting of sort of a revamping slash rewriting of DC golden age history here done in a very clever way because all this was wiped just like with, with Jeff Johns bringing back the lost children. And we're, we're going to be undoubtedly, we're going to be pivoted to do new kinds of adventures. That's kind of what's happening here with Jeremy Adams. And I think Jeremy Adams is very cleverly sort of creating a new past or a new history. And there's so much more about uh, young Judy Garrick that we probably don't know. Now it's going to be revealed here. There's great scene. There's great scenes in, in this particular issue with uh, with Judy uh, going shopping for the first time. You can imagine she's a girl from the 1940s, and then all of a sudden, you know, seeing the modern day malls and uh, going going with Star Girl uh, shopping. I mean, sure, that's got to be a pretty big deal for her. And then the, the shopping is interrupted with uh, her father sort of looking in on her. I was a little bit surprised that Jeremy Adams scripted that. Uh, you know, Judy's all upset that. Her father is like following her. It's like, well, you haven't, you just sort of remembered each other. Is it really that, would she really be that upset if her father is following her to the mall just to check 100%, out on her? 100% she would. 100% she would be that upset. Jeremy has young daughter. Jeremy has young daughters. My daughter's a little older than Jeremy's daughters, but yeah. as, as fathers of daughters, yeah, yes. A hundred percent. Mine's only nine years old. She hasn't reached that point yet. But uh, I just, it, it just, uh, anyways, it, obviously that's a minor nitpick. Uh, it, it's very clearly she's out with Star Girl. She wants to have some fun, but Robert interrupts that. And how is this Robert villain connected to the villain that uh, caused all this, her, this time dysfunction to begin with, causing them to lose the memory of their daughter and what have you. That's yet to be determined. This was largely an issue that was, I I think this is still sort of set up, still setting up the mystery, setting up the relationship, showing Judy Garrick in this, in this new 21st century world. And uh, I, uh, but there's still, I'm still looking for those character moments where there has to be at some point, some realization that, Hey, I mean, how long do they have to live? 10 years? I mean, uh, before they drop dead? I mean, how long? <laughs> you know, again, there's such a huge age gap here. And I'm wondering how that's going to be done. Uh, but uh, again, that, that that is a nitpick because at the end of the day, this is a fun comic. Uh, the, the art works. It is brightly colored. And I am curious to see what 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 the in story is, what, what the history is uh, uh, that Jeremy Adams has set up for this first arc. <clears throat> Yeah, and I, I do think about, you know, we we mentioned when we were reviewing Flash, you know, Jeremy even wrote one of the uh, issues with his daughter. Uh, editor said it was fine, whatever, then <laughs> it came time to put it out and give her credit. And 
DC Legal's like, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> Nobody thought to talk to legal. So I say that to say, yeah, I'm sure this, I haven't talked to Jeremy about it, but uh, I'm sure it's, there's a, you know, a person, personal aspect to it um, in terms of it's Jay Garrick, it's his daughter. Uh, I'm sure Jeremy's drawn on his own relationships with his <laughs> yeah. daughters when, when he's writing it. So, uh, all right, moving on. Uh, one of the, I don't know, I, I don't want to say controversial. Um, what's the right word? I, I, I guess opinions are divided on how uh, Tom King's Wonder Woman is being is being received. Some people really love it. Some people, you know, are, are like, ah, oh, here we go again, Tom King. Uh, everything's doom and gloom. But I'm really uh, enjoying it, and there's a there's sort of a tongue in cheek aspect to what uh, Tom King is doing here. So Wonder Woman three, written by Tom King, Daniel Semper is the artist, Tamayu Moray on colors, Clayton Cal on letters. Uh, I'm gonna let you start, Rocky, and then I'll kind of expand on uh, what I was uh, starting to say about the, the the varied opinions of uh, of this book. So, what do you think of issue three? Uh, I I enjoyed this. I'm. I'm happy to report, or rather, uh, happy to report. I'm happy for myself that I'm enjoying this because I really wanted to enjoy it. I got to say, because uh, it, it's really it would be very difficult for me to hide any any uh, need to rant uh, because I, I the, the one comic book that I I've reviewed the most of in my small YouTube channel is 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 Wonder Woman. I used to review it exclusively for 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 a number of years. That's what I really started out doing. And I always loved ranting about Wonder Woman. And there was always something to rant about because few writers get her right, quite frankly, and yet I continue to rant about her. But I enjoy this. What what Tom King continues to do here is I uh, rarely has a, another writer in my view uh, there, there there has been other writers that have done this, but Tom King has I think very uh, appropriately and effectively shown Wonder Woman to be very, very powerful and very, very wondrous, dare I say the word. And she is powerful. And she's portrayed in a way that is deeply respectful. And there, there is reverence for her. And, well, you know, this storyline is such that an entire country is being manipulated by the sovereign. And uh, they're being made, uh, they're being man manipulated in terms of the media and, and in other ways to uh, look down up to judge the Amazons for uh, what appears to be a, a rogue Amazonian attack in a, uh, against exclusively men in a, in a, in a bar in Midwestern America. And, uh, you know, clearly there's a setup here and Wonder Woman is investigating. She's looking for Emily, this rogue Amazon that apparently did all this. She's investigating it and she wants to, she wants to, uh, th this entire issue again, Continues with the narration, with the narrator being the sovereign, and I'll talk about the narration in a moment. But this this narration of the sovereign, again, it takes place. It's the entire issue is more or less narrated as as the sovereign talks about Wonder Woman, talks about you know he's talking to Trinity, uh, and and as he's narrating the story, the events of the issue play out as Wonder Woman enters this big, huge corporate building, taking the elevator up to approach Sergeant Steel. And there are so many interesting little uh, plays. There's a, moments where she's in the elevator. There's, a, there's an individual in the elevator, a bodyguard or a security guard that sees it's Wonder Woman. She's not supposed to be there. They're not even supposed to know that Sergeant Steel is in the building because it's top secret. Of course, she's Wonder Woman. She knows, but she's not going to play their little games. There's, there's an undertone of... Uh, 
dare I say, I pick up an undertone of condescension in Wonder Woman's voice, and that might be too harsh a word, but she's 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 clearly amused by these efforts that 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 the, that these top secret officials, particularly Sergeant Steele and even Steve Trevor, she calls them adorable all the time. And I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with Wonder Woman phrasing it that way, but that's what she says. She finds it adorable that Steve Trevor actually thinks that she's being fooled and she doesn't know that they're being spied upon. She's uh, She finds it adorable that Sergeant Steele thinks that she's as, as foolish or as naive as he imagines her to be and the Amazons to be. And, and she very clearly is quite above, she, she, she knows what's going on and she confronts Sergeant Steele on it. And meanwhile, uh, the solve, uh, meanwhile, I got to be careful here because uh, I'm being extra careful only because I have, yes, uh, I don't want to give away because I did sneak a, a sneak peek at issue four. Uh, so let's just say that uh, the, the conversation that Wonder Woman has with Sergeant Steele, not necessarily a heck of a lot happens in this issue, but what does happen is Tom King focuses on the use of Wonder Woman's power, or of her power set. We saw her use the magic lasso. We saw her graceful movements. And uh, thanks to the uh, amazing art by Daniel Semper, here in this issue, she uses her tiara as the weapon. As she throws it out of the elevator, it takes out the security guards. Uh, She confronts Sergeant Steele. And there's a major revelation here. And the major revelation being that... uh, the, the blood of Emily, there was some blood of Emily that was at the crime scene uh, where, it, where uh, she had attacked the men in the bar. And the blood of the Amazon appears to be that of a pregnant woman, which, which, if, which immediately, immediately must make readers wonder, well, is Trinity actually the daughter of Wonder Woman? Is Trinity potentially the daughter of Emily? Maybe Trinity isn't. And and because as Sovereign is is mentioning this to Wonder Woman or as Sergeant Steele reveals this to Wonder Woman, uh, the Sovereign is is telling is telling the story to Trinity and Trinity herself, the older Trinity, appears to be surprised by this. And um, so, yeah, I, I thought that was uh, quite uh I loved it. I, I, I really enjoyed the issue. I, I, I loved how, ma- how majestic Wonder Woman appears. I love the way that Tom King is scripting her. Her voice is still a little, maybe a little bit too condescending in some ways, but I, I still like it better than her voice has been for years, quite frankly. I like it. She's being respected in a way that few other writers have, at least in, in my memory. I like it. I choose to like it that way. One, com- uh, one quick comment on the on the backup, although I guess I'll talk to the backup after, after I after you know say your thoughts about the uh, about the main story proper before we get to the backup. I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, right? You talk about sort of the inherent condescension in, in her voice, uh, and I I kind of liken it to Superman, right? Like Superman being uh, so powerful. And really, when you think about it, and the story's been done to death, uh, you know, what if Superman were evil? You know, um, Mark Wade did a fantastic job with that concept in Irredeemable from um, IDW a while back. Or was it uh, Boom Studios, I guess? Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, there's this idea of Wonder Woman being the, the male equivalent of, of Superman. And, you know, if you think about it in those terms – you know, how well does it work and is she really holding back? And and that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who was raised as a, a warrior and, it, you know, in a lot of respects, there is that aspect to her that 
she she sort of she should be a little bit condescending, right? She is really, you know, that much better uh, than than everybody else, you know, to some degree. And so, you know, I think in a lot of ways it that is how it should be uh, because she's she's Wonder Woman. Um, but kind of along with that comes this idea of it's sort of uh, it's sort of funny. There's this this tongue in cheek sort of way that she has talking, you know, uh, there is a little bit of condescension, but, but here's the thing, right? The people that she's being condescending to Sarge Steele, the kind of the, the minions of the, uh, the sovereign and, and those sort of people, uh, we're, we're in on the joke and what comes across is, yeah, she's condescending to them, but guess what? They deserve it. They yeah. deserve it. And we're, we're, again, we're on her side. Yeah. We get to kind of, you know, ride along with her and go, you know what? You guys are scumbags, you know, sovereign, you, you're a scumbag. And, uh, and so in that way, uh, it's, it's kind of fun, right? It's fun. And so, yeah, for me, this, this is really working. Um, the art by Daniel Samper is absolutely fantastic. Uh, if, if there's anything about it that maybe isn't quite as um, – it doesn't work quite as well for me, it would just be the idea of it's – a, it's a little choppy. It's a little choppy. Like we're, we're, But when you think about it, we're covering uh, an awful lot of ground here, you know. Um, and, you know, I talked about it in, in the first issue, you know, the Wyoming Massacre or whatever it's being called. You know, there is an aspect to it that's not as um, – that's not – what's the right word? Um, it, it, it doesn't play out really simply. Like King had to make a choice. It, it is super impactful. You know, we talked about the fact that, okay, this event happens and then in, in almost what seems to be no time in the comic, Congress has passed these laws and all the Amazon Amazons have to get out and all that thing. And it, it moves along very, very quickly. And it feels sort of choppy, but on, at the same time, like if if you had it sort of play out in a little more of kind of real time, then we're eight issues in, and people are going, "God, is you know what's going on?" and the political back and forth and, and whatever. So I, I, I kind of think he was forced to, to make a choice uh, and really say, "Okay, I, I have to move at a little bit of a faster pace." Um, so it has felt sort of very self-contained for the three issues that we've had sort of focusing on different aspects of the story. Um, and it hasn't necessarily come together for me yet. I mean, it's still very, very good, but when I look at something like uh, danger street, right. With all these disparate characters and disparate parts, and that has flowed so well, seemingly in a way that would sort of uh, be antithetical to the, the disparate characters. Like you wouldn't think that that would be able to, to flow so well. Uh, from one issue to the other with the Dr. Fate helmet narrating and whatever. But then you come over to this and it's, it's just Wonder Woman that it's focusing on. Uh, and, you know, you could argue, well, it's the sovereign and it's po politics and that sort of thing. Um, and it's not flowing as well. And the other part of it is Wonder Woman, you know, less so in this issue, but certainly in the first issue and, and a little bit more uh, in the second issue, uh, less than here. 
Um, so it does seem like the spotlight is turning. If you look at issue one to issue two to issue three, the spotlight is turning more to Wonder Woman. But I think that's also a, a sort of a product of the fact that these have been narrated by the Sovereign. So we're getting his point of view rather than Wonder Woman's point of view. But it does feel a little bit like, even though I mentioned that condescension and it feels like we're riding along and we're in on the joke with Wonder Woman, this doesn't feel like a Wonder Woman book in, in the terms of she's the star. It, it does feel like she's almost a guest star in her own book because we're, we're almost viewing her from the outside. We've had sort of little insight to what Wonder Woman her, you know, herself thinks about the extradition act. And, you know, we only get what we can glean from when she's talking to Steve or when she's talking to Sarge Steele. Yeah. And so it's sort of interesting. Like we're, you know, no, we, I know comics or whatever, they don't do thought bubbles anymore. A lot of times what you would get in a thought bubble is in a dialogue box for exposition or whatever. But like I said, that's all, that's all coming from the, uh, the sovereign's point of view. So it's an interesting take that for Tom King to, you know, you talk about him getting Wonder Woman's voice, right. Uh, but we're not really getting much insight into like her actual inner thoughts. So that's another part of it. Um, and the fact that she feels a little bit like a guest star. So, you know, this is not to say that this is perfect. Um, but there could be a reason there could be a payoff later on. This is the reason that King's doing it, in, you know, in this way. Um, either way, technically, it's a very well put together book. Like I said, the art is absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying it as well. Um, you mentioned the backup. That's written by Tom King as uh, as well. Uh, Berlin Ortega is the artist. Yeah. Um, this is a <laughs> yeah, it's a really fun uh, romp here. It, it's you know, we saw what was in Wonder Woman 800 was the first time. <coughs> excuse me, really saw Trinity in story. She clearly had, uh, you know, prior relationship and uh, interactions with John Kent and Damian Wayne. We see the early, you know, interactions now. We're talking about the son of Batman, you know, the legitimate son of Batman in terms of biological son, the son of Superman, the daughter of Wonder Woman. So it's the next generation of heroes. It makes sense. They'd all come together. So John and Damian are supposed to be babysitting. Lizzie's clearly a handful uh, it goes about as well as you would expect. You like forget about the fact that these three people are, are superheroes, um, and just you know talk about two teenage boys having to watch a, a very precocious, like eight or nine year old. Um, yeah, things are going <laughs> to go sideways. Uh, it's worth the price of admission just to see Lizzie literally kick the crap out of Killer Croc. And, you know, I saw that scene and I was like, man, just how strong is this person? You know, who, I mean, there's some assumption that it's Steve Trevor as the father, if it is in fact, um, Diana's kid at all, because like Rocky said, you know, we find out in the main story that, uh, supposedly Emily's pregnant. So immediately you, you, your thought goes to is Lizzie actually Emily's daughter. I mean, you can't help but think that. Um, but either way, uh, I'm really enjoying the backup. Um, we'll get more of these. Tom King mentioned uh, on social media that he's enjoying writing these backups as well. Um, and, and one thing about the art, uh, Belaine Ortega, th this art is a little softer than I've seen her work before. Um, it, it feels like a little more of an animated style, which I think sort of suits the fun-loving aspect of the story. Um, so overall, I was really impressed uh, with the backup. And again, I think that uh, Tom King's getting the the voices of of these characters down, uh, especially when it comes to 
uh, a very young Lizzie and, and we're getting uh, kind of the sense of her personality. You know, we saw her in, uh, in Wonder Woman 800. I mentioned that she wasn't very likable at all. Uh, and so we're getting kind of the roots of that, right? Like she's just like this supremely confident person even at this very very young age i mean i said when i say eight she come she might be five here i mean she's very young um so yeah well, great it, says, job. it says a few years from now so i honestly i don't think she could be more than three i mean yeah, she, that's a yeah, few, that's a few yeah, years yeah. i mean yeah that's entirely three three or four yeah entirely yeah possible. i don't know i mean you might be right uh yeah but, but definitely um, no older yeah no older than five i wouldn't think uh yeah. alejandro sanchez is on colors and clay Callan letters i want to make sure i give them credit uh, as well so yeah what are your thoughts on the backup uh well uh, before i get to the backup i'd be remiss if i didn't say that the lasso of lies was used by the sovereign in this issue in the main story oh that's yeah At the lasso we, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it he does use the lasso of lies to manipulate and it appears that the power that the lasso of lies has is that whatever that the, the sovereign can make can impose whatever truth he wants on someone else. He can tell you what your truth is. He can force other people to believe in a lie. And he does that to one of the soldiers that was involved in the attack on, in, in the battle against Wonder Woman when the U S military battled Wonder Woman. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, it's, I thought a well-scripted conversation. And I, I, I think people should check it out. It, well, check out this issue. They'll enjoy it. And it really shows the power of the sovereign and the power of the lasso of lies to not, and all you need to do is manipulate and create a lie with one person and you can influence the media as we all know you can. And that's exactly what happens in the main story. And I think it's very, very effective. And you talked about how this reflects our real world sometimes in disturbing ways, political and otherwise, I think it's very effective in the main story. But so I yeah. just thought I'd mention that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I, I, I did, when I read it, I, I wanted to remember to speak on that. Like the word that came to mind when you see what the sovereign does, first of all, the misogyny is just completely off the charts, right? Like this guy's just constructing complete fallacy and fantasy, whatever. And, and the thought that came to my mind about what he's doing is, you know, on the heels of this guy's a total scumbag is this is such a despicable act like the, the, and so selfish like I, I i don't know it's just hard for me i've never really had that uh it, it goes back to like er, you know early things and i won't get into the details of it but you know kind of my formative years why i don't i'm not really <laughs> misogynistic at all um but you know i i know there that, that it, it's simply a matter of, of the world world that we live in, the world that, you know, it's, it's been a misogynistic world just based on history. The world history is full of misogyny. So, you know, it's to be expected when you have a character like the, the, the Sovereign. But, yeah, just despicable, just completely disgusting. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wanted to mention it. So, uh, But a quick note on the backup here. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to probably sound, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, cause I'm going to sound a little, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here about the backup. Cause I'm a little bit frustrated. Uh, Tom King to, uh, he actually tweeted today or yesterday. I, I never looked at the date of the tweet. He says that the backups here, he, he, he compared them to Calvin and Hobbes. That's what he feels. They're, they're like Cal, doing a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip is what he feels like he's doing in, in writing these backups about a, about a young, a young Trinity with, with the super sons. Uh, uh, but I actually feel, uh, I feel this would have been so better served um, had these backups not exist and these backups consisted of stories addressing more of the main story proper because I don't, I don't think we need these stories now. 
I think this, this, these backups take away from the suspense of the main story. I mean, now I'm more inclined than ever to believe that Trinity really is the daughter of Wonder Woman. So it's definitely not the daughter of Emily. So the big possible misdirection in this issue has completely had its potential effects taken right out from under us. Plus, if Trinity is in fact the daughter of Emily, that's a lie that goes right up there with the with the bat with the with the Batman non non wedding that occurred. So what's the bigger lie? The fact that the wedding never occurred, or the fact that maybe Trinity isn't the daughter of Wonder Woman? I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm just making a Mount Mount Rushmore here, but I I personally, as much as I love, I like the feel and the fun aspects of this backup. I don't feel. Uh, I thought it was. It didn't quite fit the tone. Of, 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 the, of the main story proper. Uh, I like the story. It's in the spirit of Super Sons. I, I like the Trini Trinity. I like, I like her as a young woman here. Uh, pardon me, a young young girl interacting with uh, Damien. I just feel I just feel that it's a little bit out of place. I would almost like a like ha have these stories collected maybe four or five months from now once once we get the first 12 issues of this Wonder Woman arc out of the way, uh, I would have liked to maybe have this own series. So I think the timing of these stories is a little bit questionable. I feel like DC is trying to force sinister suns down our throat a little bit too quickly. They're so desperate to capture the super suns again and now we're getting these backups so quickly. I feel that they're they're too afraid is you know let 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 we just found out Wonder Woman might have a daughter. We, we're not even done the main story yet. Just slow down a little bit. But uh, so I feel a little bit mixed about it. But, you know, there's my rant. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I take your point. So I don't I, but I, I'm I mean, the fact that they already we already got the jump ahead, you know, story in Wonder Woman 800. I, I don't mind us getting the stories of Lizzie as a little kid. But I do. I, I agree with you about the disparate tone. Now, this is nothing new. We had the young Diana stories uh, yeah. that didn't fit in at all, or what what have you. Like, are they trying to recapture Super Sons? We know they have Sinister Sons coming. Yeah, yeah, they probably are. I would be more interested in reading. I don't. I don't know what you call it. You can't just call it Super Sons if you have Lizzie. But I. I would be. I mean, I'm looking forward to more of these backups because I. I like the dynamic between these three characters. Would I like it in its own book? Yeah, I probably would. I probably would prefer it in its own book because you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't fit the tone um, with what we're getting in the main story, which is so mature with you know political themes and what have you. Um, but I don't know. Maybe they're worried about putting out too many books. Well, no, they're not. We have 14 this week alone. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, next up, we have Batman Offworld. Jason Aaron writing Batman for the first time. Pencils are by Doug Monkey, Inks by Jaime Mendoza. Colors by David Barron. Um, did I say letters? Does it say letters? Uh no, there's no letter credited, so don't know who does. Yeah. Mendoza or, or Baron? Or no, Mendoza's inks and colors are by David Baron, so yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. Uh, anyway, so this, uh, I, I wasn't really looking forward to it. Uh, not that I thought it would be bad. You know, Jason Aaron, you kind of wonder what he's going to do. Doug Monkey, his art for me, sometimes he, it feels like he over-renders things. There's a little bit too much detail or what have you, but... We're drawing aliens, so who's to say if aliens are going to have extra lines on their face or not? They're aliens. So uh, this is some of the, the best artwork I've seen from Doug Monkey in, in a long time. His Batman is very brooding. If you're wondering when this takes place, this takes place very, very early in Batman's career. What the hell is he doing in outer space? Well, uh, you know how we talk about the power creep with Batman and how Batman is just so great at taking punishment? He's such a great fighter. Jason Aaron has come up with 
an absolutely fantastic idea. Now, if you've been listening this far, you know we spoil things, but if you want to be surprised, and I feel like there's a, there's a lot of worth in picking up this book and having no idea what it's about other than Batman's not on planet Earth, uh, you know, maybe skip ahead a little ways and, and don't listen to our review about this. But uh, this is just the idea that Batman, while trying to clean up Gotham City, and this is in the first, again, year one, year two, uh, comes across this Irish gang who has as an enforcer an alien, an alien that's stuck on Earth, and they have him as an enforcer, and he beats the shit out of Batman, for lack of a better term, right? This is Batman. He's been around the world. He's been training he wants to be the best fighter, you know, the the, the perfection of uh, uh, of sort of human physicality. And when he gets his, the crap kicked out of him, he's like, well, I need to be better. How do I get better? Well, I need to go out and figure where this alien came from and find out how it was trained <laughs> and go through that training myself so that then I will be better. So that's what he does, right? He uses his, his, some of the billions he has with Wayne Fortune. He buys his experimental shuttle from – uh, Star Labs, and he just launches it off to whatever galaxy he's supposed to go to, goes into suspended animation, whatever, and ends up exactly where he wants. Ends up exactly where he wants, which is on this ship where they basically go around kidnapping other uh, sentient life forms that they then sell to uh, this coalition that mines, uh, you know, ore and resources and what have you. Um, and 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 they have you know really great fighters. They have robot fighters they have alien uh enforcers that are fighters that are in armor or whatever so batman's out there purposely getting the crap kicked out of him to learn how to be a better fighter by these aliens and the only really uh alien species that we've seen so far that i, I really recognize there's a tamarian there you know like starfire or blackfire um and yeah he's out there he's out there a lot like just launches himself out there like you no, know, how are you gonna get back home i'm not thinking about that i'll figure that out I'm Batman, uh, but this is not far. This is not. It's not a situation where, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, right? Batman jumping from the moon. We've talked about how crazy that is, but when you stop and think about Bruce Wayne and his obsession with being the best and and needing to be perfect and you know uh, do everything within his power uh, to fulfill his vow and his promise that he made while kneeling down uh, next to the bodies uh, of his dead parents, <laughs> you can completely understand that he would do that, that he would make this decision. Does it make sense? Like logically? No, not really. It's the power creep thing. It's absolutely crazy. Um, you know, we sort of saw it in, I can't remember. I think it was Batman brave and the bold. Was that what it was where he, Bruce was having Alfred beat on him? And we were like, why is he just having Alfred beat on him and punch him? Whatever. He's doing the same thing, but these yeah. are aliens that could like punch him so hard. He, he would die. Um, uh, anybody doesn't die. He just suffers. And, but then we're supposed to believe that he, he like heals without any like medical care or whatever. I mean, again, you got to take it all with a grain of salt, but, but is it fun? Hell yeah, it's fun. Is Doug Mounkey's art just fantastic and perfectly suited for, you know, all these aliens and this action and this just completely over-the-top uh, situation? Yeah. Is David Barron, do his colors just jump off the page? Yes. Uh, so, it, yeah, I can just imagine, and and it comes through in the story, how much fun Jason Aaron had writing this, like, Again, I had no idea. I, I purposely, like, I saw Aaron was writing Bat, uh, a Batman story. I saw it was called Batman Offworld, and I purposely did not 
read any solicits. I didn't want to know anything about it. I wanted to go into it cold. I did. And it, yeah, it just had me smiling the whole t- time. And part of my, my enjoyment of it is me thinking, well, this is so ridiculous, right? Like the fun that I couldn't really enjoy Batman jumping from the moon. I, I just couldn't accept that. It, that's, you know, as far fetched as that was, this is just as far fetched in a lot of ways. But for some reason, I'm able to accept this. Like, th- this is just working for me because it is so fun. Maybe it's because it's not a singular event. Um, it it kind of is transcendent in that. It's, you know, Zadarsky p- put stuff in his story when that happened or whatever to try to make it seem like it could really happen when he's talking about the angle of reentry and all that stuff. Like, Mankey doesn't bother uh, or uh, Aaron doesn't bother with any of those kind of, okay, let's make this realistic, whatever. No, he's just like, no, Batman bought a shuttle, shot himself out there. He's out there. He's fighting aliens. He's learning the whole time. Uh, Not so different than what Midnighter does with his, you know, computer brain (laughs) uh, when he's fighting people and he learns their techniques. This is Batman, but it's Batman. Supposedly he's doing this and he's still human. He doesn't have any superpowers. Man, it's just, it was just so fun. I just was smiling the whole time and kind of laughing to myself. That's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, but it's so Batman. Uh, it's when we talk about the Batman, you know, of current DC, where, yeah, the power creep is a thing. But I, I just enjoyed the hell out of it, man. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. What'd you think? I, I, I love this. And, uh, you know, I got, I got two very, very familiar vibes when I read this. It reminded me of William Mesner Loeb's uh, Wonder Woman in Space run from Wonder Woman's Volume 1, Issue 68 to 74, I think it was. During that run, there's that famous Brian Boland cover, Issue 72 of Wonder Woman, where she's standing in front of the shield and everything. But Wonder Woman in Space, where she utilizes all of her powers – uh, all uh, on everything she is to inspire women on a slave planet to rebel. A lot of bondage covers. It was, anyways, but it was it was a fun, fun. How often do you see Wonder Woman in space? You don't see Wonder Woman in space very often. So so cool to see. I also got a, a little bit of a vibe of the original John Byrne uh, War World run, where Superman's sort of out of his element too. Uh, he's on. He's in. A, he's on War World again. More of the Wonder Mesner Loeb vibe in Wonder Woman, and I got reminiscent of the original War World saga, and then Batman here in Off World. This is just—I mean, the fact that Batman—I mean, good God—the guy doesn't need to be possessed by the Batman Azurna or Barbados, uh, <laughs> uh, or, or, or you know, I mean, the guy is already normally insane to, to literally to be so pissed off that you, you want to take down an opponent opponent the only way you can do it is that to spend 579 million dollars to buy a spaceship to fly in near a home world that is similar with an alien species as the villain as the alien villain that pissed you off on earth just to learn how to beat the crap out of him and and the, what i love about this is that jason aaron you know he, he actually takes a concept w- because how many stories have we gotten chip sardaski gave us a story about a, a young bruce wayne learning how to be batman but you know it's never really been asked uh, to my knowledge, and I'll, I'll stand to be corrected by anyone who wants to leave a comment, that, you know, how does Batman learn how to fight aliens? How does he learn how to do that? I mean, he went around, he traveled all around the planet Earth and learned how to beat the hell out of human beings and be a great detective. But, but you know, it sort of begs the question, well, what happens if you fight, uh, fight an alien whose kidneys are located where his heart is or his liver is located near his cheekbone or some, some crazy thing? And, and that's where, where this is going. He needs to learn to be a better hero. He, he needs to learn how to, how to defeat all different types of life forms. And this is sort of Batman's education 
in, in regard to the various alien life forms in the DC universe. And in if this has been done before, please somebody send me in the direction. But I think this is as simple as this story is. It's kind of an inspired idea. And it feels new to me. I, I, I'm trying to remember the last time I read something where Batman is on another. I mean, and this is so Batman. Leave it to Batman to he doesn't want to escape. No, he wants to stay on this ship. And, and, and learn how to fight all these aliens by this with this robot teaching him how to box. And not that he doesn't know how to box, but this alien's going to teach him about all these aliens and what their weak points are. This is Batman learning how to hurt. Batman isn't about just hurting the human villain. He wants to learn how to hurt all bad guys, regardless of your species. He wants to know how to take you down and cause you pain. This is a Batman that I love. This is Frank Miller in space, Batman, in his early years. This is awesome. And Frank and Doug Mankey, I, I, I love his art. I love his art on Justice League Elite, where I fell in love with it when he did that series, Justice League Elite. Doug Mankey's one of my favorite artists. He just has a visceral dark. He's the tone of it, Doug Mankey's art is just perfect for this series. I've already read issue two. I had to. It gets better. <laughs> issue two is even better than the first issue. I, I like you. I highly recommend this series for people to pick this up. Yeah, it's, it's just a heck of a lot of fun. That's that's all I can say. So much fun. Uh, all right, up next we have uh, Superman number eight from writer Joshua Williamson, art by Gleb Melnikov and Norm Rotman, David Baldione and Jamal Campbell, uh, colors by Alejandro Sanchez and Campbell, letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, continuing the story of The Chained, we get a little bit more of his origin here. We find out um, why he has tactile telekinesis. Much like Connor Kent, we find out why it's more powerful. It, it, come to find out that when uh, Cadmus went to basically, cr- you know, create Connor Kent in a lab as a clone of Lex Luthor and Superman, they sort of threw in some um, of the chain's uh, DNA as well, and uh, that's why uh, Connor has a tactile telekinesis, although not on the level that um, that the chain does, because that. He was given his powers, you know, not at birth, but later uh, by Lex Luthor. And that's why he holds why he holds Luthor responsible um, for sort of being the way that he is. And, and obviously, um, Luthor was, uh, you know, instrumental in giving him powers, but then also uh, in imprisoning him, you know, for years. So he he's out for revenge, but not just for the sake of revenge. Uh, because, you know, we did see at the end of last issue, he was, uh, approached by farm and graft to, to, to join up. And he's like, well, why should I join you? He doesn't, he doesn't need, um, their help to get revenge on, on Luther. He feels like he can do it himself. But what's interesting when you start talking about the chained, um, Sam Stryker, who, you know, killed his, his father, um, who was the person that, you know, built the penitentiary or what have you. Um, but when you start talking about Sammy Stryker, you're talking about somebody that probably had some mental or personality issues already. And then you give him that ability and, you know, that might come from the type of upbringing he had with his father, probably, you know, very authoritarian or disciplinarian. Um, and so, you know, this ability to, to lash out and, and power that, uh, maybe was not put in the, you know, the right hand, so to speak. Again, we're talking about a Luther sort of at the beginning of his career as well. Maybe didn't make the the best choices. Um, You know, not that he makes the best choices now, 
um, being that a lot of times his choices are in his best interest. But I'm sure if Lex had it to do all over again, he's not going to give uh, give the chain the powers that he that he did. So um, Superman, once he realizes and gets a little bit of the background of what's going on, he goes to Luther. Hey, how'd you capture him the first time? It turns out he built in a weakness. Uh, again, a Luther early on, uh, before he was even really aware that Superman existed. Well, there was this rare element back in Smallville when I was a kid that I just, you know, found some of. Turns out it's kryptonite. So what is the chain's uh, weakness? But the same as Superman's, it's kryptonite. So Superman wears some armor that has kryptonite gauntlets. The armor, you know, protects him. But during the fight with the chain, the armor is damaged. And so although they are able to recapture the chain, uh, Superman's infected with kryptonite. And we're told uh, only one thing can save Superman now, super armor. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um, the art's just not quite as clean as it's been uh, throughout the run. There's been uh, a very specific style that Jamal Campbell has, um, especially when he's coloring his own work. It's got that digital painted feel, and it's very smooth, and it flows really, really well. Not to say this art is bad. You can just tell that there's a lot of different people working on it. They do a pretty good job of making it all look consistent for the issue, but it just it, it's if you go back and look at previous issues that Campbell did on his own, it's not as uh, it doesn't flow uh, as well. But the storytelling is fantastic, the color works great, and uh, I'm really enjoying Williamson's uh, take on on Superman. It's a fast paced. It's a faster paced Superman story than we've had for a while. You know, maybe it couldn't help but be faster. You know, the previous Superman guy was, uh, was Bendis, right? So it had to be faster than Bendis's decompressed storytelling <laughs> style. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. I look forward to seeing more of the chained. Um, although he's defeated here, I, I can't imagine he's going to be, um, left off the, uh, the playing field for very long. He, he seems like, a good addition to Superman's rogues gallery. So uh, we'll see where that goes uh, moving forward. What'd you think? I, I was, I, I still remain intrigued as a compliment to uh, Joshua Williamson. I, I still remain intrigued at, at just how he's piqued my interest regarding the early years of Lex Luthor. It really does appear so far that in the early years of Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor really was a hero or at least more more closer to hero than necessarily anti-hero. Now, we, we, we got a little bit more information by Lex Luthor himself. He says that the reason why he chained up uh, Sammy Stryker was because it was was not because he was dangerous. Well, it was because he killed his father, that Sammy Stryker actually killed his father. The, the, who, the, his father was the one that actually built Stryker's prison. And so, you know, according to Lex Luthor, Sammy Stryker is in fact perhaps criminally insane or is in fact a murderer and Lex Luthor took it upon himself to chain him and of course Superman has issues with that saying well why did you do that yourself why didn't you give him to authorities but when you see as a reader as we see how powerful the chained is part of me is sympathetic to Luthor's position Luthor probably assumed the responsibility because at, at some point he he probably considered himself with his both his a degree of arrogance and narcissism as being the protector of Metropolis before Superman came along. And so he probably took it, it. It's perfectly in keeping with Luther's 
uh, personality to say, no, 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 I got to cage this guy. I got to imprison this guy. I can't trust. No one's as smart as I am. Only I know how to imprison this guy, how to keep the world, keep Metropolis safe. So it's, it's, it fits with Luther's character. And I like how, how Williamson has set that up because it, you know, I, I think it works. It possesses a lot of that of that magic verisimilitude. Is that word that I actually pronounced correctly? So uh, I I actually like that aspect of it, and I like how the the characters are developing. I I still love Lena Luther. I want to know what he's going to do with that. Uh, Lex's relationship. Let Lex dare, in a rare moment of showing actual caring and emotion and compassion. Lex Luthor showed genuine concern at, at the potential uh, killing of his daughter, Lena, when the chain had her up there. He was, he, you know, he very much asked her, please, he even, I mean, Lex Luthor said to him, I mean, let him go, uh, let her go. And, you know, it's, you know, I'm not sure. The jury's maybe still out to what extent Sammy Stryker is this, is this diehard murderer? To what extent is he, is he that, is he that uh, insane? I'm not sure, but I, I like the character work that's being done here. That's what really stands out for me. And uh, you're, I agree with you on the art. It's not as good as Jamal Campbell, but it is consistent throughout. And it didn't detract from my enjoyment of the story. I mean, yeah, Jamal Campbell's in here. Uh, you know, he's still credited as, as the artist. And again, I think they do a good job. I probably have to go back through because um, I didn't notice while I was reading it. There was any time where I went, what? Wait, Campbell did that page, you know, Ratman this page, whatever. So, yeah, the art is uh, it's consistent. Uh, at least you can say that. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong. Issue number two from writer Brian Buccioletto. Christian Ducey is the artist. Luis Guerrero on colors. Richard Sarkin in comic, comic crafts. Uh, Jimmy Betancourt on letters. Uh, yeah, Godzilla hits Metropolis. What do you think? Uh you know what? Uh, I, I'm actually not. Uh, I, I'm actually. It's this. This. This is. This is not on my pull list, to be honest. Despite all the hype and all the different covers and the and the and the radio covers and the or whatever the the sound covers and all the hype surrounding this, it's actually not on my pull list. Although I, I have a sneaking suspicion my my retailer probably has got. He'll he'll have as a courtesy probably put some in my my pull list because this is something that is there's certainly shelf copies and will be shelf copies on on the shelf for probably quite a while because this is sort of a bigger event uh but i but that's not because it's not a great story i i think the covers are kind of cool uh in this particular one there's actually there's actually uh you can combine the wonder there's a batman and wonder woman cover that you can combine uh side by side it's clearly a cover gimmick but it is kind of cool this issue is 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 more just set up, but this is fun. This does feel, dare I say, I know it's cliche to say, we say it from time to time, but damn, when it fits, it fits. This does feel kind of cin- cinematic. And with uh, Godzilla Minus One, which is coming out, and uh, I, I just finished watching the second episode of uh, of uh, Monarch, the, the monster, it was uh, streaming on Netflix, I think. So Godzilla and Kong and the monsters stories like this seems to be uh, where uh, seems to be sort of like the one of the hypes at the moment i enjoyed this uh it's uh, i think that uh, uh what is it Bucinello? how do i say his name oh Bucciolato. Bucciolato. uh Bucciolato, uh I, I think he scripted a good story here he does a good job of showing uh of showing how the heroes battle battle these monsters and I absolutely, I thought it was so cool, maybe a little bit predictable, but I love how Shazam and Superman fight Godzilla 
and how as a reader, I'm sure I'm not the only one that when Billy Bassin appears above Godzilla and he's going to shoot his lightning down on Godzilla, I'm sure I'm not the only one that was thinking that's a mistake because Godzilla is powered by lightning, you idiot. <laughs> and even Superman tells him to stop. It was just kind of a fun fanboy moment I had, you know, because I don't, I'm not an expert on Godzilla, but if it's one thing I do know is that you're not going to defeat Godzilla by hitting him with lightning. <laughs> and I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, there was good character work on the Bat Family where, where Jason Todd, of course, being J Jason Todd, doesn't listen to the Bat Family, breaks with protocol, tries to shoot uh, and distract, tries to kill one of the monsters that's affect, uh, attacking Metropolis, ends up making the situation worse, pissing off the Bat Family. A lot of action. I love the use of uh, Batwoman in here. I thought it was really good. This was really genuine action packed. Uh, you know, 33 pages. I mean, comic books are pretty expensive here, but I think that in terms of action, uh, in terms of it within its own continuity, I think if you're just looking for a good read and you're, you want to pick up a, a miniseries that's going to be a lot of fun, I think this is it. This was a, a lot of action. The first issue did was a good setup, and here we're getting right into the action, how these monsters are affecting and attacking all these cities. And this was a lot of fun. And I... Again, why isn't this on my pull list? It probably should be. To be honest with you, I'm inclined to maybe wait for the hardcover because I'm enjoying this enough that if I have this level of enjoyment like I did this issue and we're, I don't know what this is, five or six issues long, I can see myself picking up this in hardcover, especially if they come up with some fancy foil and I open up the hardcover and it, it, it roars Godzilla to me or something or King Kong's roar. Uh, I I. I can see myself doing that, but this is definitely one that for whatever reason, I'm probably going to wait for the, for the inevitable hardcover to come out, but I enjoyed this second issue. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. You, you know, you mentioned the, um, the, the punch, I think it's bad girl that punches out Jason Todd. I definitely got a Bwahaha one punch vibe. <laughs> yeah. Batman punching out Guy Gardner. Yeah. Uh, you know, Brian Buccioletto is about our same age. Uh, so you know, I'm sure he read that when he was a kid. He's probably <laughs> a little bit of an homage to that. So that, you know, that was a lot of fun. The other thing, and I was kind of surprised you didn't mention, I thought you were going to go there, but you, you went to the Billy Batson lightning bolt thing, uh, which, yeah, I had the same thought. Oh, that's not going to go well. But I thought you would uh, mention, or maybe you didn't notice it, but so what I found to be so interesting, so we have Shazam or Captain Marvel and, and, uh, and Superman, and they're taking on Godzilla, right? And Godzilla is is Godzilla, right? And a lot of people think, oh, Godzilla's a T-Rex. No, Godzilla's not a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He's so much bigger. Uh, you know, he's this giant lizard. He, he's not a Tyrannosaurus Rex. When you look at him, he, he, he's just, he's Godzilla. Like, he's singular. There's nobody quite like him. <laughs> he's like this cross between, like, like his tail and the scales on it look more like a Stegosaurus than a Tyrannosaurus. And he's, he's much, you know, bigger. He just, he's just Godzilla and he's just the king of the monsters and he's amazing. Um, and so it makes sense that you'd have, you know, two of the most powerful heroes in the DC universe taking him on. But you would think they would fare a little better because <laughs> they really get their butts kicked. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have Batman and the Bat family over here, and they're taking on this giant – I won't even pretend to try to pronounce it whatever, but yeah, more, more yeah, kind of a, a – I don't know a, what it is. <laughs> a, yeah, South uh, – maybe is South uh, America or, or, or Brazil or something like like uh, Mayan or Incan or you know, some kind of monster from, from 
Latin American lore uh, yeah. of some sort. It looks like a giant bat. It looks like a mutant yeah, bat. Yeah, and they mention it, yeah, they mention it, you know, looks very bat like and whatever. And yeah. so it makes sense you have the bat family take take them out. But but again, no powers, uh, with the exception of Black Canary, who who, you know, uh, based on the fact that this monster has sonic powers, they, they figure that out when they figure out the weakness and whatever. And it, it sort of feels like, despite some property damage in Gotham City, it sort of feels like, yeah, it's Batman, he figures out he figures it out, they defeat their monster relatively easily yeah. with, you know, again, using uh, Black Canary, but didn't have to. Buccioletto easily could have had it, uh, you know, okay, they figure out the frequency that the monster is susceptible to, and then they just play it, you know, blast it over the speakers of the bat plane or whatever, and it takes the monster out. But, you know, they used Black, Black Canary, and it made sense, and it was cool, and they're great visuals, whatever. But, yeah, and it's a great scene. It's a wonderful full-page splash from Christian Doucet. Uh, and you could, you know, just see it if they ever turn this into an animated or, or yeah, live action would be amazing. Uh, we've seen that scene so many times where the hero's walking forward toward the camera and whatever happens behind them, you know, a big explosion, boom, and the dust kind of, you know, goes past them or whatever. It's like that hero shot. And then, yeah, they do that. And it works really, really well. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see it there. Rocky has it. It's just amazing, as Batman said. And so, yeah, I got the vibe. I'm like, here's Batman and his Bat family without any superpowers. And they take out this giant flying bat monster in Gotham City, whatever. Meanwhile, you got two of the most powerful heroes in the DC universe trying to take on Godzilla. <laughs> and they get their butts kicked. So I don't know if it says more about, like, Batman's better than Superman or more about the fact that Godzilla is just, you know, he's king of the monsters for a reason, whatever. Yeah. But I, it uh, stood out to me. It stood out to me. I'm like, well, here's Batman taking care of business. Uh, in you know, relatively short period of time, and then we got Superman over here. Who can't you know? Maybe, maybe he's trying, um, you know, trying not to hurt the monster or whatever. He's Superman being Superman. You know, he's trying to get the monster away. He's trying to get Godzilla away from Metropolis. He's worried about property damage. Worried about loss of life. And you know, don't get me wrong. That's not what Superman should be. But there, there was a part of me that kept waiting for. Why don't you just like fly way off in the distance, come flying, you know, with as much speed as you can muster. Uh, and just lift the thing up and fly it where you need to fly it. Like I, I kept waiting for him to do something like that. Uh, but anyway, it's just something that stood out to me uh, that I wanted to mention. Like here's Batman taking it out relatively easily uh, and Superman struggling. So I, that stood out to me. The other thing was, uh, you know, we, we got an oversized first issue that was a lot of fun. We got a lot of um, the, of the uh, Legion of Doom. The Legion of Doom got got – a fair amount of screen time in the first issue. And I really loved it. They're bickering back and forth and one-liners and talking smack on each other. We didn't really get that in the second issue. More action, which is great. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that interaction and, and that spotlight on the villains was kind of needed to move the story forward for us to understand how, why the uh, monsters are here and what have you. Um, but I missed, I missed it a little. I missed it. I missed seeing the, the villains bicker back and forth. I enjoy that. So I hope that there's more of that coming because we did get a little bit of the villains, but, but not a whole lot. Um, uh, so, again, it makes sense. I, we, d we got more of the, the heroes and their interaction uh, in this issue. We mentioned the, the Bat family, Jason Todd, the punch out, what have you. Uh, yeah, the first issue, we didn't get that much of the heroes. We got some Lois and Clark and some kind of set up as far as kind of emotional, uh, interpersonal relationships, but not as much as of the heroes. Um, that was this issue. So, you know, it's fine to, to kind of balance it out, but I did miss that because uh, I really enjoyed uh, the way Buccioletto scripted the interactions between the villains. So hopefully that's coming. 
Yeah, just a quick ad, just to quickly add, Black Manta and the Cheetah do, do discover that it was Toy Man playing with that sort of magic red crystal that probably had something to do with the monsters coming to uh, our dimension of Earth. So that's the only thing, like I said, a small bit of information with the Legion of Doom. In, in this yeah, issue, which, but- yeah, that was sort of, that was almost like Buccioletto saying, okay, if you missed the first issue, I'm going to lay it out because yeah. it was clear <laughs> that that's what was going on. And, and anybody who you know, red night terrors <laughs> recently is familiar with the dream, uh, the dream stone or what have you. It's the same, same concept here. So the, you know, wishing stone, if, uh, if you will. So yeah, this is a lot of fun. Like you said, uh, I think that we've used that word probably a hundred times in reviewing the first two issues of this book. Uh, but that, but it is what it is. Like um, if you, you have somebody, and, and this is not a book that's like, overly violent. It's very much cartoon violence, that sort of thing. So I say that to say this, you know, Christmas is coming up. If you have a 10 or 12 year old, uh, especially a boy who's into superheroes, monsters, that sort of thing. Uh, and you're looking for some comics to get him for Christmas, getting them yeah. the first couple issues of this. Yeah. Uh, probably the first three issues will be out by the time Christmas rolls around. That'd make a great, uh, present under the tree or stocking stuff or what have you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, these are just a heck of a lot of fun. So, all right, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Teen Titans number five from writer Tom Taylor. Nicholas Scott is the artist. Annette Kwok handles the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Out of the shadows, this is the finale. It feels weird to say that this is the finale, uh, that this is the end of the first arc, because it really isn't the end of anything other than uh, I guess it's the end of the sort of subplot of, of Wally West being killed. Um, we saw two issues ago, Linda West get infected by the alien uh, and then Nightwing and Wally West and Linda go to the Titans trophy room, which is actually this um, structure on Mars and come to find out Nightwing was one step ahead the whole time. So I really enjoyed that aspect. Um, And basically they get there. Linda tries to, you know, cough out the little spore onto Wally. Wally's super speed dodges it. Nightwing kills the the little spore or whatever. So, you know, supposedly this was how uh, Wally was going to be killed. There's a little bit of exposition from Dick Grayson saying, yeah, well, we knew that, you know, Wally's the fastest guy alive. How could anybody get the drop on him? It had to be somebody that he trusted. It made sense that it was Linda. Linda spent some time uh, alone with Garth, uh, Tempest. So, yeah, it, it all made sense. I'm, I'm I'm glad it didn't get dragged out. But it did feel like, if you go back and read that first issue, it makes such a big deal about the fact that Wally West is going to die. And then we really didn't get, although it was mentioned several times, it was never, it, it never really felt like a threat. We, we never really felt like Wally was, they gave lip service to it, that they were worried about it, but it never, Wally never really seemed in danger. And then the way that he's saved feels felt very anticlimactic. So I, I don't know how well that worked. Um, clearly, the spore is something to do with Starro. At this point, we know that Beast Boy is going to turn into a Starro in, in the upcoming, um, uh, you know, Titans Beast World event or what have you. Um, so we know that's coming. We know that. Now Nightwing uh, and Wally and the rest of the Titans know that Brother Blood isn't in possession of his own self. You know, we, they know that Garth's being mind-controlled as well. And they 
Do they know what? Do they know it's Starro? Not yet. Um, but that's basically, e- even though that's sort of the subplot, that that's sort of the main part of the story. The other part of the story that uh, actually takes up more space but feels more minor is uh, we saw last issue that Gar wanted to go back and um, do something other than just stop the fires in, in Borneo that were happening. They went and they stopped that natural disaster, but then Gar wanted to do more, right? He felt like, hey, we stopped the natural disaster, but we need to go and help rebuild. It's not enough to stop. Uh, they go there. There's some terror, eco-terrorists and what have you um, buying up the land and, and doing um, unscrupulous things. So they stop all that, but then, okay, okay, what can we do now? So they go and re- recruit Levi uh, Kame, the current Swamp Thing, he goes there. They use the, a variety of their powers because it's not enough just to replant everything. They need water. They need wind. They need sun uh, and that sort of thing. So they use their various powers to kind of um, create this situation where they restore a lot of the force that was burned down. And uh, along the way, they uh, they try to recruit Swamp Thing to join, uh, which is interesting because he is a you know, much younger version. And he's uh, a different sort of Swamp Thing than Alec Holland ever was uh, you know, Levi's much closer in age to the Titans and he's able to kind of transform back to Swamp Thing, human back to Swamp Thing, as opposed to Alec Holland. He was always stuck at Swamp Thing. Um, he's like, well, you know, I have other responsibilities, Avatar the Green and what have you. So he, he kind of agrees to be a reserve member, which which I think is interesting. Uh, it, it sort of ties Swamp Thing more to the superhero side of the DCU as opposed to the supernatural side or the quote unquote vertigo side, if you will. Um, so that, that's interesting. But like I said, that takes up the majority of the issue, but it, that feels like a little bit of the subplot. Um, even when you start talking about the, the covers, you know, it's, it's marked for death. It's, it's really the, the thing that's still moving forward is the story of, okay, this says it's the end of the first arc and it is, but really it's now we're getting, now we're starting to really get momentum into beast world into what, you know, whatever comes next. So like, would I say, okay, buy the trade, buy volume one of, of Titans um, as collected, you know, if you're trade waiting? Well, if you are a big fan of Nicholas Scott's art, I mean, that, that's worth the price of admission right there because the art's gorgeous and beautiful uh, as it always is when uh, when she does the line work and Annette Kwok's colors are done very well uh, also. Um, but this whole, this whole first arc just feels like set up for what comes next. So I could see people feeling, I don't want to say cheated, but feeling like they, it's not necessarily the best value in terms of bang for your buck, you know, um, because everything is is setting up what comes next. And, and in a way, when you think about this issue, it's a sort of a perfect example of the problem I've had with the series so far. Like I started out defending it as much as I could. Uh, cause Rocky was the one saying, yeah, it's just not getting anywhere. It's just not getting anywhere. And the last couple issues, I've just come around to that way of thinking. And it's like, this issue encapsulates it perfectly. The majority of the issue is spent on something that doesn't really matter that much going forward. Yes. Swamp Thing is uh, a reserve member of the Titans now, but is that really a thing that you had to devote the majority of the issue to? Um, because really what we're talking about moving forward is, is beast world and, uh, and what comes next. And that's, that's the, in terms of real estate that's spent on that in terms of pages uh, and just attention, it's, it's, it plays second fiddle, but it's the most important part. So I, I don't know. I'm really struggling with Titans right now. I, I want to like it more than I do, 
but it feels it feels backwards. It feels like like story wise, structure wise, things are just aren't clicking. So um, I know Tom Taylor is a super talented writer. I'm a fan of his. He's a great guy. Uh, I love Nicola. She's a friend as well. Um, but man, this it's just it's not clicking for me. Um, something's not working. So hopefully, with the second arc, it gets better and it kind of flips around and it, it feels like the emphasis is being put in the right place, uh, so to speak. So uh, anyway, what, what did you think about it? Well, I, well, I mean, you're, I, I could repeat everything you said, but you said it, uh, you said it very well. And, and I agree with you. I, I think this is just meh. It's, it's, it, is it good? I guess, but it's just kind of meh. Everything wraps up. Dare I say it just wraps up so conveniently. Everything, all the ducks are in a row. It just seems so convenient. There was nothing really seemed, like you said, it just, it just felt, kind of meh and boring there i say now there is an interesting revelation at the end but who cares about the revelation at the end uh, did you know that wally west died in the first issue and guess what that turned into be kind of the meh again uh you know uh this is uh, it's it's missing something this is this is this was missing a hook this was missing something that really grabbed me and it hasn't grabbed me yet uh now it, it looks like brother blood is a tamarian as well or tamaranian and my guess is maybe it's could that be Ryander, who's Starfire's brother, who's dressed as Brother Blood? Uh, I know that Starfire had a brother, but uh, uh, assuming he hasn't been killed off in some other event. But so, uh, so yeah, I'm not going to add to your comments because I think you said uh, I agree with you. I will say this though that having read the first issue of Beast World, I think that you don't need to read anything to understand it, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> So I, I I was stunned. I'm stunned to say that I think Beast World first issue of it was actually an interesting setup. You don't need any of this. I didn't need this setup at all. It's not that difficult to concept Beast World. It's 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 beautifully encapsulated in that opening issue when and people will know when they get it. I think this almost this setup is so boring that I actually think. God, I hate to say it, but I'm not sure if people are going to be all that excited for Beast World. Beast World is better than this story, which is a kind of a lead into it, would suggest, straight up. And uh, so I was actually pleasantly surprised because I'm not looking forward. I mean, who wants to read an event centered around Beast Boy? I mean, I mean, good God. I wanted Beast Boy to die in Dark Crisis. I was disappointed they didn't kill him off. I Literally. But now with Beast World, maybe he'll, maybe he'll get he'll get the maybe the credit and the gravitas that maybe dc has been trying desperately for him to get other than just being the boyfriend of raven in young adult novels so uh, uh people, all, love beast, people love beast boy I, I know they do i know they do i don't i'm not one of them but maybe beast world will change my mind again i like the first issue and we'll be reviewing that next week or two weeks from now whatever it is but uh, yeah but this was this was just it was just kind of meh for me i love tom taylor but this these titans is just not it's not really firing on all cylinders for me, uh, but maybe uh, Beast World and getting into that will things will change. We'll see. Yeah, Beast Boy. We'll, th we'll talk a little bit about it later. Um, <laughs> there's another Titans book to talk about. I'll save my Beast Boy thoughts for that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, Catwoman, Nine Lives, issue number 59. Tinny Howard on story. Stefano Raphael on art. Veronica Gandini on colors, Lucas Gattoni on letters. Ah, uh, this is a lot of fun. This is really interesting. <laughs> Playing off of what happened at the end of Gotham War. Uh, 
apparently Catwoman literally has nine lives now. We, we know that, you know, the meteor crashed and, you know, created a Lazarus pit of sorts underneath Gotham City. And then, you know, you mix in this idea of um, that meteor being what gave uh, Vandal Savage his immortality. And, and, you know, we know he's tied to Gotham City now. And so Catwoman herself as uh, sort of a, a side effect of that, she's not immortal, but she does have nine lives and she actually has these nine scratches on her back. Uh, and when we see him for the first time, one of the scratches is, is sort of black, has this black mark. So, you know, that's the life she's currently on, so to speak. So she decides that she's going to go on these missions, these missions that she's sort of had planned out, but they were never worth risking her life for because they're that dangerous. Um, and the first one is to go and, and, take out the uh, the woman who previously was in a relationship with uh, with Valmont. It's the woman who owned the cat Duchess, and it's this woman who's uh, an assassin, and she doesn't let anyone near her. Uh, if they do anything, uh, her servants do anything that she doesn't like, she just kills them. So she, there's a lot of innocent blood on her hands, you know, despite the fact that she's a, a contract killer. I think Catwoman's sort of okay with that. <coughs> uh, uh, Paolo Molina is her name. Um, and again, Catwoman sort of okay with her being a contract killer. It's the killing of innocence that she can't, uh, that she can't really stand. So um, in the process of taking this woman out, uh, Catwoman dies twice. So she's already down, you know, she says, okay, it's, it's worth it to, you know, use up my lives to go, you know, take these people out or, or steal, you know, whatever particular thing is, is unstealable or whatever. Um, but I don't think she's, you know, planning. Uh, she said there's like seven or eight missions. I don't think she's not going to make it if she's losing, you know, two lives per mission. Um, but it's really, it's, it's an interesting uh, premise to uh, for Tinny Howard to uh, to really get Catwoman sort of back out on her own solo without all the supporting cast and, and that sort of thing. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. Uh, even in the midst of Catwoman taking this woman out, uh, as I said, she dies twice, but she doesn't even realize. She thinks that she actually made it through without losing any of her lives. Uh, and then when she's getting undressed at the end of the day, you know, those marks, as I said, now three of them are black. She's like, oh, I guess this particular time when I got stabbed, I actually died. Or this particular time when I got shocked, I actually died. Um, so, I mean, we're not surprised by it, uh, especially because when it happens in the story, um, we get this little hint uh, in terms of the uh, the art. We're seeing this, like, Egyptian cat idol, um, apparently, when uh, – when Catwoman loses a life. So very interesting, uh, a lot of fun. And as kind of a throwback to Catwoman being uh, more on her own, once again, she's in her old purple costume back from like the Jim Ballant days. It's not my favorite Catwoman costume. I've vastly preferred over the costume that she's been wearing recently. The one that Joelle Jones um, designed. Like I just, for whatever reason, I never liked that. I never understood why the, there's cutouts on the armpit. What does she sweat a lot from her armpit? So she needs it uncovered. I, I just thought that costume looked terrible. Uh, my favorite one is actually the one she wore like back in the mid eighties when she had the skirt and she always had the whip with the cat of nine tails. Uh, but that, you know, when you think about it, 
how much sense does it make for a cat burglar to be running around in a long skirt? It, it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Like it's not practical at all. I just visually, it's always been my favorite, but, but yeah, it's fun to see her back in the purple uh, costume. Uh, I, yeah. I prefer this one over the, the Darwin cook one with the giant goggles. I never really like that one either. Uh, or so, sometimes it's not goggles and it's just the giant eyes on her face. This, this to me, go with this one or go way back to the, the skirt one. Uh, those are my favorites, but anyway, I thought it was, uh, was a lot of fun, very refreshing to get away from all the unnecessary, uh, um, accompaniments and supporting characters or whatever. Catwoman to me is best solo out on her own, doing what she does. Forget about the relationship with Batman. Forget about her running alley town. Just give me Catwoman out there pulling heists uh, and the fact that she's going to be pulling heists that are as dangerous as anything she's ever done. Yeah, I'm in. I'm really enjoying this. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Maybe my favorite issue of the Tinny Howard run so far. Uh, I don't know. It's close. It's up there for sure. What do you think? Well, I, I actually like the concept. I, I don't like how this concept, how we arrived at it because I really didn't enjoy Gotham more. And I thought there, there could have been 10,000 different ways that would have been more interesting to arrive at the concept of nine lives. She could have been, I don't know, she could have, I mean, she could have been in Egypt and knocked down a cat idol and, and, and then got swarmed with some magical something that gave her nine lives. But, but you know what, I don't, whatever, I don't care. The, the idea that, you know, she's using up these nine lives, it is interesting that she's decided to give herself some almost, it's like, the concept is interesting. It's like Selena giving herself a series of like six or seven mission impossibles where she's no, she's going to die, but she has to do these things. She's, she's wanted to do these things, but she's, I guess she's too afraid or she doesn't want to risk her. They're not quite enough that she wants to risk her life for, but if she knows that she's not going to die, well, then she's going to give it a shot. That's kind of interesting. It's I, I'm surprised she, she almost wastes a life on this particular villain, but but then I guess that's the point of the story. It's going to be interesting to see. You, you mentioned the different costumes of, of Catwoman over the years. And I, frankly, I, I love all of them. I'm, who doesn't love Jim Balance, uh, Jim Balance uh, purple costume? It's gorgeous. I wonder if Teeny Howard, if we're going to get a different version of Catwoman moving forward, like each, because with, with three lives already being used up and we got like six left, this might be a six, six issue arc. Is each issue going to be a life? And is this going to be a six issue arc called nine lives? And is it, it almost reminds me of like uh, the, the 12 tasks of Hercules and the 12 things that uh, Superman had to do and for, for all seasons. And, and uh, you know, what's, what is this teeny Howard's epic Catwoman story where she's going to, you know, knowing she's got nine lives, she's going to use them all to the best of her ability to right the wrongs that she couldn't do if she was mortal. But now that she's temporarily immortal, you know, she's going to do this. A uh, couple of questions I have, which prop I don't think Teeny Howard is concerning herself with. How on earth did, did Catwoman actually discover that, I mean, that she must have died once to realize that she's got nine lives. She woke up, she saw these scars and then how did she just assume that it meant that she's immortal? I don't know. It was, you know, I guess she just found out uh, why I'm, I'm, I'm almost curious as to her recklessness. I mean, how many of us, I don't, how many of us would choose that if we know that we had nine lives, would we put ourselves in the harm's way just for shits and giggles to get things done? Uh, it, 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 it shows an interesting side to Selena. And I'm really curious to see where Teeny Howard takes this. I, 
I, I hope it's more than just, well, you know, Mission Impossible for the sake of Mission Impossible. I hope that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of past Catwoman stories where she's done a lot of questionable things. And rather than Teeny Howard telling her new story, her own stories and making up these villains like she made up this one. I'd like to there's there's I'd like her to delve more into Catwoman's past because there's a I mean Catwoman's faced death many times by many villain and I'm really surprised she would be afraid of dying because of this one w woman I I don't quite buy that but I get it for the sake of story and I will give Teeny Howard credit that uh, this this is an interesting concept I hope she does something with it and I hope these I hope these this these individual stories uh, that this quest that uh, Selena's on keep getting more uh, more interesting because it is a cool concept i hope she uh, nails i hope the journey is fun and that she nails the landing yeah i think she will i mean i, I think this was kind of a let's get our feet wet um sort of thing but i i mean this was a fight as opposed to a heist uh, i'm looking <laughs> forward to some some heists that are uh, gonna cause selena to uh, to risk her life so yeah uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman, Superman, World's Finest, number 21 from writer Mark Wade. Dan Mora is the artist. Tamara Bonvalon on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Yeah, it's uh, Superman and Batman. They're on what? Earth 23? The yes. uh, Kingdom Come Earth. And the Kingdom Come Earth is not aware that they are part of a multiverse. Um, so Superman and Batman end up there. Uh, they're looking for Thunder Boy. Um, he, what do they call him? Thunder Man here, I think he's called. Yeah. Um, and yeah, things go sideways quickly when the Batman of Earth-23 and the Superman of Earth-23 are taking on their counterparts. Um, this is just a lot of fun. Uh, if you've read Kingdom Come and you have that context, you're going to get a little bit more out of the story. Um, but it's not necessary. Like th this is basically Mark Wade going back and, and giving us basically the, the prehistory of why the world of kingdom come was the way that it was. Um, so the question becomes, um, doesn't this story have to end in such a way that it doesn't change anything? Like, the Superman and Batman of Earth Zero or Earth Prime are going to have to leave and everybody else will have to forget that they were there and forget there's a multiverse so that things can play out the way that they did in Kingdom Come. Or is it going to be a situation where Batman and Superman of Earth Prime save the day um, and stop Boy Thunder from becoming Magog? And then Kingdom Come will have never happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's interesting, but... You know, leaving aside that sort of paradoxical thinking, this is just this is just fun. This is just timeless. This is what Wade has been doing with World's Finest all along. Uh, and there were hints and rumors of uh, of Boy Thunder being Magog in the first place, um, and that wasn't necessarily laid out when we saw him basically leave the comic. He was only there for, you know, short, like two, three issue arc, but I'm glad Wade's come back to it. And I'm glad it's Dan Mora drawing it because his, uh, his art is absolutely fantastic. And the, the characterization of the different versions of Batman and Superman makes sense, which is so interesting uh, to me that Wade is able to write these characters. He writes them very well, 
but they're they're essentially the same characters, right? I mean, they're both Superman, they're both Batman, but he he writes them differently enough based on the context of the worlds that they live in that there are differences, um, and you can definitely see and get get the idea that uh, that the Batman of Earth twenty three will come around to be accepting of what Earth Prime uh, Superman and and Batman are there to do and, and say and believe as opposed to the Superman of Earth 23. Ah, they're lying. I don't want to buy into it, whatever. Maybe it's just uh, much like um, the Superman of Earth Prime felt um, a real connection to Boy Thunder. Maybe it's, you know, just the same thing. The Earth uh, 23 Superman just feels such a connection to Thunderman that he, he's got blinders on so to speak, to what, what actually is the truth. So uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Um, I know it's sacrilege to say, uh, but to me, Kingdom Come is just okay. I never, I'm not the biggest Alex sacrilege. Ross. It is. I know. I, I, I'm not the biggest <laughs> Alex Ross uh, guy. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong for, uh, you know, one static image, his art can be very impactful, but <laughs> he, yeah, his art doesn't really, it, the transitions from panel to panel just aren't his art's not it's, it's just not that style you know it's not suited to feel real fluid it's very much suited for like you know covers or splash pages or that sort of thing as opposed to kind of the traditional storytelling where you've got to show action um but anyway neither here nor there um I'm actually enjoying this and the concepts and uh, the backstory that Wade is creating here in this more, way more than I enjoyed Kingdom Come um, back in the day. So anyway, that's my, uh, that's my hot take <laughs> that I'm sure a lot of people are going to disagree with. Oh, Kingdom Come, so good. Um, I sort of feel the same way about the Marvels um, across the street at, at Marvel Comics, which was also ra- around that same time and really put... Mark or uh, Kurt Busick and Alex Ross name on the map. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're beautiful comics with the acetate covers and what have you, but in terms of story, it was interesting, but I never really understood why. I, and, you know, maybe that's just the contrarian in me when, when something blows up so big and everybody's like, I love it so much. It's, it, it's like, eh, let me take that with a grain of salt. But anyway, what do you, what did you think of, uh, of this issue? Well, well, first, you, you, you can't put down Kingdom Come without me giving a little bit of a rebuttal. Uh, I, I will just say this. I, I think Kingdom Come is a timeless tale. And it, it's, it's a tale that it, work, work, it reminds us of, of the fact that uh, no matter how, well, how old we are, like uh, you and I are the same age, we're maybe older school, and we did things a certain way. Well, if we imagine ourselves to be heroes, well, the, the generation that comes up after us they tend to think differently. And in Kingdom Come, it's a generation that, that was, uh, it, it didn't have the, it didn't have the guidance of, of the moral code of Superman because of what happened in the story itself. And I think it's, it's very telling. And uh, I think a lot of, uh, I think you can draw a lot of analogies to, to present day in terms of the struggles and the, the generational struggles that are occurring right now. And it's not just between uh, new heroes, uh, older heroes and new heroes. And I think that in, in that respect, that the, the tale of Kingdom Come is very telling in terms of what happens when a new generation of heroes lose their mentors, lose, lose some guiding principles. And what, uh, what Mark Wade does well here with this world's finest story is it's telling us the origins of, of a younger Earth-23, 
uh, of events that would ultimately form part and lead to the events of Kingdom Come. And actually, it, 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 it will work. This is the younger Superman. This is, uh, this is Earth-23 has a Justice Brigade, which shows up at the end of the issue to confront uh, Earth-1, uh, Earth-Prime, uh, Superman and Batman. And ultimately, they will... And, the Justice Brigade, the, the the legacy characters, the generation that follows the Justice Brigade will be the heroes that will ultimately uh, lead to a more uh, unfortunate fate at, at the end of Kingdom Come. But uh, the origin here of, of of the person of Thunderman who will become Magog and the revelation at the end here that all the heroes of Earth-23, not only do they, do they not know about the existence of the multiverse, which is why they're so surprised to see these, what they believe to be probably doppelgangers of Superman and, and Batman, is that they they also discover, that they, they, you also realize that the, the, the Gog, the, the, the one that has manipulated Thunderman, into who will ultimately become a Gog is Gog himself, and that the the heroes, the Justice Brigade itself, worships Gog. Now that's huge. That's a huge revelation, and so it makes me speculate with my knowledge of Kingdom Come. What happens? We know that ultimately Gog must be defeated, and then maybe Thunderman might be taken off the playing field, and then at a subsequent date return as Magog to Earth twenty three and kill the Joker, setting off the events of uh, Kingdom Come. And in any event, I think this works very well. I, I love the, I mean, the, the art by, uh, I think it's, once again, it's Dan Moore, I believe, on the art, uh, and uh, Tamar Bond villain on the colors. I, I think it works very well. I think story-wise, I think Mark Wade knows these characters, uh, whether it's the Superman, Batman of, of Earth Prime, Designate Zero, or uh, Kingdom Come. And uh, I'm, I'm, I had a lot of fun with this. As, a, as somebody who loves Kingdom Come, it's a special place in my heart. Like 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 thousands of hundreds of probably tens of thousands of others, I own the own the omnibus. <laughs> so no, I, I enjoyed it uh, once again. I mean this this is also one of the comics that is uh, in competition for my pick of the week, and I still haven't chosen my pick of the week yet, man. But because there's still some good ones to come. Yeah, I haven't thought about it at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. The the fact that it's the absence of Superman, my favorite character that basically leads to the, the world that is Kingdom Come, Consequences, whatever. Uh, you know, I appreciate that. But again, again, I just, I don't know. I feel like it's it's overhyped a little bit. And yeah. A lot of it has to do with, a lot of it has to do with the art. Just the art just doesn't work that well for me, which again, I know sacrilege would have you. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about the next one. Hot Girl number five. Written by Jedza Axelrod, drawn by Amon K. Nahelipan, colors by Adriana Lucas, lettered by Hassan Otsman Elhow. I, I keep going back to the fact that I just don't know um, Kendra that well. I just, I just don't. Uh, so when we're exploring her past and traveling through different parts of her past here, dealing with her, you know, her grandfather, dealing with her in college. Um, I, again, I, I just, I have no context like I, I can take it for its face value here and it work it works okay um but it i end up feeling like w what's the point um because the other aspect why this is all happening is because of this villain velpicula wanting to utilize uh kendra and her uh, nth metal, the fact that she's infused with so much of it to get back to the nth world, and it never works. Like, th this has been Velpecula's like MO throughout, right? Like, she's been gradually trying to use people that 
have more and more access to nth metal to finally get there. It's like you keep making the same mistake over and over. E- even using uh, Kendra doesn't get you there. Like how big of an idiot are you? Um, and then it's Kendra herself who ends up in nth world, which, you know, that's going to go poorly for her uh, as well. So, uh, so what, what, what's the point of this? That, that's where I, what I'm left feeling. Uh, and I've been a fan of Ammon K's art in the past, but and even in this, even in this series itself, but this one felt rushed. This art felt unfinished. It felt uh, like, like the backgrounds were very light. A lot of silhouettes at times, uh, which can work. Don't get me wrong, but uh, it just the art just felt rushed. It just didn't feel um, up to the standard that uh, I expect from from this artist. So uh, I started off with high hopes for the series and, and really trying to keep an open mind, but. Um, it feels like it's in a little bit of a death spiral, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> being that this is a hot girl book. Um, so yeah, I wonder how well this is going to be remembered. I have a feeling that, um, most people are going to want to forget it, especially longtime uh, hot girl fans, because my understanding, again, I don't have con- context and I don't have the knowledge because I haven't read uh, a lot of Kendra's, you know, previous stuff, especially her, you know, some of the formative stuff that came in the, uh, I guess a lot of it came in the Justice Society, Jeff Johns run, right? Pre uh, New 52. And I just haven't read that stuff. I just haven't. So I don't have the context. Um, But for, I can only go by what people that have read it have told me. This is sort of throwing all that out, Um, either outright contradicting it or disrespecting it or just not making sense with what we've seen with what's been established with Kendra before. And, and again, it's not, that's not the you know newest thing. Um, each writer should be able to come in and tell the story that they want to tell. And God knows there've been plenty of soft reboots in the DC universe, but since then to now, whether it, uh, and even a hard one hard reboot, right. If you talk about the new 52, um, that could have changed all that with Kendra, or you can talk about DC rebirth, um, changing things as well. Um, DCU initiative could have changed, changed some things. So you can make it make sense if you want it to fit your head cannon. But if, if you look back and think about how, about how popular that's really when Kendra became a popular character, a character that people cared about. And then if you're, if you're throwing out things that were established that made that character beloved, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's a little bit of a misstep to me. Again, I, I don't have a dog in that fight because I, I, I I'm not invested in, in Kendra that way. Cause I haven't read that stuff. Um, I'm just going by what I am getting from this series and it's just kind of meh. It's just, it's not really working for me. And you know, when people I trust are telling me that it goes one step beyond that, I'm going to tend to believe them. So, uh, anyway, what do you think, Rocky? Well, I'm going to, uh, 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 there are a- aspects of this particular issue where I think uh, Jaxina uh, uh, Axelrod actually, the, I thought there were some deeply heartfelt moments here for Kendra. And I don't think, uh, uh, obviously, it, it sort of missed you. And, and you, by the sounds of it, uh, Jace, you know, you, you're saying that you, if you knew more about Kendra's past, you, you'd maybe be able to uh, appreciate the storyline more. Look, I don't remember all the details of Kendra's past either, but I, I, have a, I still appreciate this a little more than you do, only because uh, 
uh, maybe it's, it centers on one scene in particular, and uh, and that's the one where where I I really thought it was effective on some levels. Well, Valpecula is going through is somehow. Uh, and this isn't really explained exactly how she's doing it. She's going through different aspects and different moments in Kendra's life to when Kendra at different parts of Kendra's life, starting off when she's small, because she wants to get Kendra at any point in her life to agree to, you know, tell me what your wish is. I'll grant it and then I'll own you. And then you'll basically, it's almost like sell your soul to the devil, but it's Velpecula. And and that way Velpecula will be able somehow by Kendra you know, making sort of a, having Velpecula grant her a wish or a desire that somehow that will get Velpecula access to her past lives and she's going to utilize Galaxy's powers that she somehow controls and be able to get control of Kendra's lives and somehow utilize in in some machine to enter into the Nth world. Now, admittedly, none of that is really appropriately explained and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Having said that, perhaps a defense can be made because Axelrod, I mean, the nth, nth metal has been used to justify all kinds of crazy nonsense in the DC universe by many, by more than one writer. Axelrod is in, in this case is saying, well, nth metal can open you up to the nth world. One scene that I thought, uh, for me, I, I thought was very poignant was when uh, there wasn't, there was a time where in one of her past lives, she, uh, uh, Kendra actually did contemplate suicide. Uh, this is a very sensitive topic, and I thought it was a very heartfelt page, and it, it really impacted me as well. I've had suicide in the family, and the words impacted me a little bit, I'm not going to lie, where, where Kendra you know, shows compassion for her past life and says, of all my past lives, I cherish you the most. And, uh, and I, I thought it was because she has compassion for herself, and, and it, I think that's, that's something that, that I think many people need to have, and I thought Axelrod did a good job of showing that you have to have compassion for yourself, no matter what you're going through in life, and this one iteration of, of Kendra's past life, basically, you know, was always trying to be somebody she wasn't, and probably as an influx of the other past lives, but, uh, you know, I think that there's a statement here about how people feel about themselves and about the integrity of their own lives. And it says something about what people go through who might be contemplating self-harm. And that's what I got out of it. So that scene actually impacted me surprisingly more than I realized because I've been very hard on this series. I'm not going to lie. This, that scene actually caught me off guard a little bit. And I, it, I, I didn't mind it for that reason. Having said that, I will freely admit that this series is – it's kind of all over the place. I think it's lost its narrative. It's not quite effective enough. I think Galaxy is too is is used a little bit too much. I don't think it's quite clear exactly what Valtecula wants. I, as you said, I don't see what the big deal is. Who cares if you get into the Nth world? Who care? Who cares if Valtecula gets into the Nth world? Why doesn't Kendra just say, "Okay, you want my help? Fine, here. I'll open the door to the Nth world. Bye." There you go. Get out of get out, get away from us. Like I, you know what I mean? Like if you want to get rid yeah. of a villain and the villain wants to leave, well, open the door for them and let them leave. I mean, I so I don't understand how is Vepecula this villain and 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 what I find very clever though, another compliment to Axelrod, Velpecula manages to, in a very clever way, get Kendra to actually make a wish. And she gets Kendra so pissed off, Kendra blurts out, I just want to be part of something bigger than myself. And she's and Velpecula says, ah, done. And so she grants her that wish, and that that opens up the doors to the nth world. So, and because the entire issue issue was Kendra getting more and more frustrated with Velpecula, she's tracing Velpecula through her various 
portions of her life, she's getting angry and angry at Velpecchio until finally she loses her temper and she falls into Velpecchio's trap. And I thought that was cleverly done and I thought it worked. And so I think of all the issues so far, this is the best issue. I'm not saying this series is great, but this is the best issue so far. And I am actually now curious to see where, where Axelrod is going with it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that the the suicide uh, scene was very Im- impactful. I, I thought that that was a, a bigger thing uh, with Kendra. Uh, you know, I thought that, that was you know harkening back to something that had been depicted before. Uh, but yeah. again, it goes back to my. I, it's not. It's not that I don't remember. It says I don't. I don't even know what is being, yeah. you know, regurgitated and, and what is new. I, I, I mean, Kendra is one of those. Characters that just she came around uh, at a time in DC when I, I just wasn't paying that much attention. I gotta be honest, and so it makes it a little bit problematic for me. So, anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Green Lantern War Journal issue number three. This is from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Montos. Colors by Adriana Lucas. Letters by Dave Sharp. What'd you think? Uh, you know. Uh- I love the art by Montos. Uh, that's the first thing that stands out to me. Uh, this is this feels like a this feels like a a, hor- a scientific horror movie. What <laughs> reading this? It's just the art is so fantastic. The the Revenant dead really look. This is like the this is like the ultimate Walking Dead in space. It's really cool. I I absolutely love the art and the colors here. It's 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 really great. And you know I mean we got these 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 Green Lanterns from another universe. You know they're 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 given the warning by the by by a John Stewart in another universe. Basically go you got to find me in another universe. You got to stop stop the Revenant dead and the, and. I guess the ultimate question here is, is the Jon Stewart of our universe good enough to stand up to the Revenant dead? At the end of the last issue, he becomes infected with the with this sort of like, like what do you call it? The, the, the Revenant queen or the Revenant dead. Or he becomes infected by them. And uh, fortunately, the he's basically rescued by these uh, Lantern Shepherd and who is ult- uh, this other mysterious Green Lantern voice that ends up being Kyle Rayner from another universe, uh, basically rescuing him and his mother on the train. They were attacked while they were on a train uh, last issue. And... Uh, with the help of steel, the uh, uh, John Stewart is recovering, but he he still has an infection, some crazy infection on his arm that looks like his arm is becoming a light construct itself. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but John Stewart doesn't even know what that means. And uh, but you know, you can imagine the disappointment of Green Lantern Shepherd from another universe. You know, he's expecting, you know, we, we need to find Jon Stewart of this universe to help us against the, the threat of the Revenant Queen, who's more powerful and will ultimately wipe out all the heroes on this planet except Jon Stewart, only to find out, well, Jon Stewart is, he's, he's a little bit underwhelming, you know, he's, he's not, he's not quite up to snuff. And Jon Stewart is, is going through something, he's going through, through something with his mother, and he's, uh, he's sort of, he's sort of off the grid, he's quit the Green Lantern Corps, that disturbs Lantern Shepard and Kyle Rayner, and they're, and they're frank with him, they say, look, we're not sure that you're good enough for this, you're probably gonna die, you're, you're, you're not exactly what we expected, we're probably screwed as it is, we need to stop the Revenant Queen, we're really kind of hoping, <laughs> they don't, they didn't put it this way, but I'm putting words in their mouth, they're saying, we kind of wish you were a little bit better than you've come across, <laughs> and that wasn't the case, and so, it's done so effectively by by Pete by writer Philip Kennedy Johnson that it actually makes me it I, I really enjoyed this issue another issue that I just uh, again it's it's in my my probably my top three for pick of the week I just I, I really enjoyed it it really established what's at stake 
speak for Jon Stewart. Uh, and I feel the threat of the Revenant Queen. I feel the threat that she poses. And, and, and yet I have a lot of questions you know, what exactly is the ultimate power? I, I've, I'd like to see more of what the, what the Revenant Queen can do. I'd like to see her take out the Justice League or incapacitate them. I'd like to see a little bit more of that because we haven't really seen much of that other than hints of what she's did on other worlds and some of the previous issues and, and backups in other comics over the last five, six months. But I, I'm, he's re really got, PKG has got me curious. I'm, I'm uh, how, how, how John Stewart's going to deal with his infection, how, uh, I mean, at one point the infection was even going to spread, but it, it appears that he can't even touch another lantern because it automatically will spread to infect other lanterns. So he's got to watch what he does in the distance. He's got to maintain a certain distance from, from Lantern Shepherd and Kyle Rayner. And I really like it. And, and in particular, I really love this Lantern Shepherd. He's a new character. And I love seeing Kyle Rayner. I know this is a Kyle Rayner from a different universe, but Kyle Rayner, I always had a place in my heart for Kyle Rayner because I was never a big fan of Hal Jordan. I frankly never became, never cared that he became Parallax. I never frankly cared that he was, when when, they, when he was taken off the playing field. Uh, Sacrilege. Yeah, I know. But I, I love Kyle Rayner. I really got into Green Lantern because of Kyle Rayner when, you know, and he became the torchbearer, so to speak. And so it's really nice to see even an alternate universe Kyle Rayner step up to the plate here and become part of the show. And I really like what uh, PKJ is doing here. I'll be honest, I really don't know where this is going. And I like that. I enjoy being genuinely not entirely sure where it's going, but knowing I have enough faith in the writer that I'm along for the ride. What do you think? Yeah, let me ask you this. Did you get the impression that sort of in a backhanded way, this story that PKJ is telling insinuates that the John Stewart that's being referenced by Lantern Shepherd is that all powerful John Stewart that we got in the Jeffrey Thorne series? Huh. I never I never I never got that impression and that never occurred to me, but it's a, now it's a, it's occurring to me now that you mention it. Is it, yeah, but is it, yeah, and again, like, because there was two, right? Wasn't there two? There was actually two John Stewart's. There was one that was left in the dark sector and one that came back. Wasn't right. there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. At the end of that story, which <laughs> yeah. didn't make, yeah, didn't make, didn't make a lot of sense really, but yeah. But it's know. like, Oh, we want, yeah, we want that story to count, but it doesn't really make sense because that, <laughs> A, a, a John Stewart that powerful could just fix everything in the universe of godlike omniscient powers that Jeffrey Thornton gave him. I mean, it just was. Yeah. You want to talk about power creep? Um, and this John Stewart, you know, you mentioned uh, him having left the core, wanting to spend time with his mother as she's, uh, you know, dealing with dementia and, and um, you know, kind of end of life sort of stuff. And, you know, he promised her and now he's got to actually, in order to keep that promise, he actually has to leave, uh, which, you know, has to just be tearing him up inside. Um, I mean, this is not a John, this is a John Stewart that is anything but omniscient, right? Yeah. Um, especially when, when he's infected. Uh, so, yeah, so interesting that it's sort of that juxtaposition between uh, the two different stories. Uh, but I agree with you. It's great world building. We know PKJ is really good at that. Um, I like Lantern, she Lantern Shepherd. I, I like seeing Kyle Rayner show up. Um, I mean, Hal Jordan will always be my Green Lantern. I know plenty of people, though, that for them, Kyle Rayner is the, the Green Lantern. I mean, the uh, the Green Lantern book, had it had really stagnated. 
when uh, they made that change with, you know, Ron Mars, Daryl Banks, <laughs> Hal Jordan l- losing it with Coast City being destroyed and going and taking all the rings that, that you know, that was just a fantastic story back in the day uh, and a great, you know, change up to the character and the whole status quo. That's what people forget. Like when it wasn't that uh, Kyle Rayner was a lot of people's Green Lantern. At that time, he was the only Green Lantern. Like Hal Jordan had had destroyed the yeah. Green Lantern Corps. Like he well, had he gone. He was the torchbearer. That's why they call him the yeah. torchbearer. He he yeah. he kept the torch bright, burning. Yeah, he. I mean, Hal Jordan kill, killed Kilowog, Supposedly, you know, he <laughs> he took all the rings. He took all the the uh, energy from the from the battery. There was one ring. There was only one ring left, uh, and Kyle Rayner got it. And it wasn't a situation where. Okay, let's search for the person who's most deserving without fear, blah, blah, blah. No, it was Ganthet, you know, fleeing from Oa and Hal Jordan having destroyed the, the battery and killed all the guardians of the universe. And it was Ganthet just fleeing to Earth and landing and crash landing in an alley. And here's Kyle Rayner coming out of this bar, <laughs> you know. I think it was, if I remember, <laughs> yeah. he like walked out to the alley to like throw up or something. Yeah. He had to right. drink and he got, the, <laughs> he got the ring. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, anyway, uh, to get back to the uh, War Journal, this is uncharted territory. Part of the reason that Kyle Rayner and that worked back in the day is because, yeah, it was a whole new world. Didn't know what to expect. We're, we're entering similar territory here with, uh, with what PKJ is doing, although maybe not quite as original because there is a little bit um, that's reminding me of uh, – oh, my God, I'm drawing a blank um, – the, the Jeff John story, Black you know, we're talking about Blackest Black Night. Night. Yeah, Blackest Night. Yeah. When you start talking about the Revenant Queen and her infecting people, whatever, it, it reminds me a little bit of yeah. what was done in Blackest Night with Necron and, you know, bringing um, Black Lantern, bringing dead heroes and villains back to life or what have you. Um, but ju- just in terms of people not basically being in control of themselves, being infected and, uh, and, John Stewart's going to have to figure out a way to fight an army when he himself is infected with the same thing. Uh, curious to see what, what that's going to be like. So great art, great pacing, great story. Um, but you know, again, you come to expect that from, uh, from Philip. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing number one Oh eight. This is from writer Tom Taylor. Stephen Byrne is the artist. Adrian Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Um, Continuing this idea of B as the pirate pirate queen, I love the interactions between Dick Grayson and B. Uh, I love that they reference back to their relationship when Rick Grayson, uh, when Dick Grayson was Rick Grayson. Uh, there's there's a great scene, you know, with B saying, "Yeah, you tell yourself you you left me because you were trying to protect me, and and you know that's just an excuse. I'm you know a pirate queen." I, you know, I can protect myself. Dick's like, but I didn't know that. You could kind of see that kind of dawn on her and realize. Um, so that, that was a great interaction. Um, and again, we're building on this idea of the hold and um, this kind of secret society uh, of pirates and what have you. Her uh, her stepbrother, adopted brother, whatever, what have you, um, taking her out. And I, it's, it's unclear whether B's going to survive going to survive this um but it's all to be uh, concluded next issue so we'll see how that all plays out um it, it does feel 
a little bit like an interlude. Uh, it does feel, and I, you know, I said this when we talked about the first issue, like this story was an excuse to put Dick Grayson in pirate garb. <laughs> it, it does really <laughs> yeah. like that. Because the one thing about this series that I've said throughout is that it feels like it starts plot threads and they, they, they just get forget forgotten about. Like we still haven't gotten a, a really good story that had really has focused on Heartless. We still have the whole idea of is uh, Melinda Zuko, is, is she really Dick Grayson's uh, half-sister or not? That, that hasn't been explored. Um, what about, uh, you know, all the infrastructure and community center and everything that Dick has built that Blockbuster is trying to, you know, tear down, um, Blockbuster's out of the picture now, but you know, what, what about the rest of his organization? So yeah, it's, it, I don't know. It feels like this, this whole series has been meandering uh, a little bit. And if anything, this story where we're taking Nightwing out of Bloodhaven completely, just makes it feel more so like that. So uh, it's still a very good series. Uh, Stephen Byrne, you know, his art style is, is different from Bruno Redondo. Um, but, uh, you know, if you are going to have a series like that, that does feel a little bit like an interlude, it does make sense. Like, hey, let's put Stephen Byrne on this. He can focus on this while Bruno's wor- working on the next arc that is actually set back in Blood- Bloodhaven. Um, and, and maybe that's just part of the reason why it's felt like it's meandered a little bit because – I want to give uh, Bruno a chance to do his uh, his best work. So, I don't know. I'm still enjoying it, but it, it's not it's not you know the must read that it was. It, it doesn't have like the impact on me that it did when it first started. Um, like I, I had tears in my eyes when I I read that first issue. Uh, so impactful, the letter from Alfred and, and what have you. Um, but it, it's almost like that first issue was the high point of the series, yeah. um, and we got some great moments. Um, in those first early arcs, you know, the revelation that he could have a half sister and um, that issue that's one long panel. I mean, th- those are really awesome things. Um, but it feels like we've, it's been a while since we've had like something really uh, impactful. Uh, you could look at the relationship between Dick and Barbara. It's kind of the same thing, right? It's, it's just sort of taken for granted that they're together now, but it, it doesn't really feel like the relationship's progressing uh, you know, it's just kind of everything status quo. And maybe that's what DC wants, right? Cause it's selling well, let's just kind of keep it going for as long as we can ride, ride the gravy train, but that's not the way to get the best work. You know, uh, if you're just trying to play it safe and it, feel, it feels a little bit like that's what the series is doing is playing it safe. Um, or, or at times pandering, like I said, which is even worse, you know, the idea that, Hey, uh, we're going to tell a pirate story cause we want to put Dick Grayson in pirate garb on the cover because we know that'll sell comics. Um, that's just the wrong way to go. Yeah, that's a great business decision, but cre- creatively, uh, creatively, that's not a that's that's not how you get the best work out of out of people. It's just not. But I've said all along that when you talk about uh, creativity and creative endeavors and what is best for that, it's completely antithetical to what's best for business. I've always believed that. I've always believed that uh, you make whatever decision is best from a creative standpoint. And sometimes it'll be absolutely fantastic and it'll turn out to be a great business decision because it'll make a bunch of money. But that is very much in the minority. Most of the time, your best creative decision 
ends up costing more money uh, and it won't be appreciated until much, much later. I mean, you can even look at like the easiest example I can give to that is, is movies, right? There's so many movies that come out and they're a flop at the box office or whatever. And then later on home video or shown on TV or whatever, they become monster hits with these huge followings and fans and what have you. Um, that's just the reality of, of the world that we live in. So, Anyway, what do you think of this issue? Well, I think I like the fact that I think it's kind of interesting. Tom Taylor appears to be setting up. Uh, there's a there's a hidden pirate island in the DC universe that we none we never know existed, and Captain B. Blood, uh, who is the stepdaughter of the original pirate captain, is is sort of like the the captain of this pirate ship, and and it's also revealed here, very interestingly enough, that uh, B. tells. Uh, Nightwing, she says, how do you think you were so successful in Bloodhaven uh, being so successful politically, you know, being successful in, in, in how in the building of the prison and, and in all the things, all the changes that you made in Bloodhaven. Bloodhaven has gone from being worse than Gotham to being a little bit better than Gotham. <laughs> and all of uh, Dick Grayson's philanthropy, all his philanthropic efforts would not have been as successful as they were, but for some of apparently the hidden, the hidden things and the uh, hidden machinations that uh, B has done as her, with her, as her power as Captain Blood uh, working behind the scenes. That's what she reveals here. And I find that interesting. It also, and it, I wonder if it's, it's Tom Taylor addressing some of the criticisms of the earlier storylines because his storylines, his plot lines do have tended to wrap up rather conveniently. We're seeing it in Titans and a lot of the Nightwing wrap ups here with, you know, it's, you could, you could argue that there's been, uh, there's been some convenient wrap ups with some of the more sophisticated plot, uh, what we thought were more complex story storylines and Nightwing ended up being not so complex after all. Uh, we still haven't got a resolution of the Heartless storyline, but in any event, it's it, it's clear that it's clear that more seeds are being planted here. That perhaps more is going on in Bloodhaven behind the scenes that we've been led to believe, uh, and in particular with the actions of B herself and. I like the fact I said well, we said it last issue. The fact that you know the adventures, uh, a love interest of Rick Grayson has come forward, and she has more. She's got more agency now as B. She's more interesting as a pirate. And you, you mentioned that fantastic bit of dialogue between uh, Dick Grayson and B, where, where, where basically they're they're yelling at each other, and you know she does, saying she doesn't need protection, and 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 it just it feels like a natural conversation. And he didn't know I didn't know you were a pirate, and you could tell there's some hidden jealousy there. So he's he's playing the jealousy of B because you know Nightwing's now with of course uh, Barbara Gordon and all the different emotions. Are, that really come to the surface here. It works. It works well. And even when they finally get to this island, remember that there's still information in, in the keep or in, in the hold that, that Dick Grayson is wondering, you know, Nightwing's wondering what's in there and what was taken. Uh, it looks like uh, Bee's been betrayed and another one of her you know, pirates, I guess it's a mutiny, I guess, has taken what, what was in the hold. And so whatever that gift was that was for Nightwing, we, we still don't know what it is yet, but the, the mystery is building. And um, I like the art. Stephen Burns, art, Stephen Burns art is good. Uh, dare I say, I hope that we get more of a payoff here than in the end on this storyline than we've been getting in Titans. But I am interested. This was an interesting issue. I 
I do think I don't think B is actually dead. I think Nightwing will probably rescue her or what have you. But it ends on a hell of a cliffhanger. I will say that. And this was this was you know. Tom, Tom Taylor has been hit and miss lately. This is uh, more of the hit for me. I enjoyed this issue. I just hope that we have kind of a payoff because I have. I feel like Tom Taylor, we haven't been getting enough payoff with his stories uh, lately, but uh, we shall see. Yeah, uh, as far as the backup goes, let me give the, the credits for the backup. Uh, it's written by Michael W. Conrad. The art is by Serge Acuna. Adriana Lucas handles the colors with Sabbath on letters. Love the art, love the colors. The story, so this ties into a story that was told all the way back in Batman 149 uh, from 1949, uh, December, or Batman 154, sorry, from December 1949. I don't know how smart that is, tying back into something that's that old. And then uh, there's one part in the story where Dick's about to explain it to Barbara, and then a police car pulls up, and they're interrupted, and it's never really explained. Um I don't know. It seems like a kind of a running theme with some of these books, but what was the point of this story? Uh, it was fun. The art was great, um, but the payoff was non-existent. This was was not an ending in any way, shape, or form. We don't even get to see Dick like knock the guy out or tie him up or anything. It's just we go from him confronting Dick on one page to him being tied up and hanging from a fire escape in the next on the next page. So I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see the point of the story. I, yeah. I, I really didn't. I, I enjoyed it for the art, um, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I don't know what else to say. Like it, yeah, yeah it missed the I, mark I, for me. I, I agree with you. I, I didn't see the point of this story. If you're going to reference a story from 1949, I mean, on the surface, that sounds cool, but good Lord, if you're going to do that, I would hope that if you're going to go that deep into the weeds back to 1949, you know, I, I would, my expectations are actually are going to be a little bit higher. Well, that's pretty cool. That must be a pretty cool concept or a cool villain, but no, it's not, it's not cool at all. It's boring as hell. It's a villain that confronts Dick Grayson and he's, he, he laughs at him. He's a joke. He doesn't even need to be Nightwing to take him out. It's like, what, what's the purpose of this? What's the point? It, 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 I didn't, I didn't quite see the perp. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it either. Uh, uh, Serg Acuna's art is really good. I love the art. And, uh, I just wish it was in service of a more interesting story. It's just, it wasn't an in interesting villain either. Uh, I mean, just doing a story just for a passing reference to a villain that none of us in, in none of us, is anybody a, I guess there are some people who've read this that might have been alive in 1949. But I mean, if you're going to reference something like that, I mean, an editor's note, uh, an editor's note to a previous issue is supposed to be an Easter egg. And that previous issue should be something that's going to be, oh, cool. Like, what is that? Or if you got to have, you know, to me, there are certain unwritten rules about a reference to a past issue. Number one, the reader has to have some willingness to want to go back and see it number one it should be a number two it's got to be a reference to a, a character that's actually interesting to inspire us to want to go back i mean having read this i've got zero interest to go back and go in a dc universe or dc app and you know google batman 1949 like that's not going to happen it's just it, you know whatever it, it was a miss for me too yeah i mean if i were to go pick up the back issue to you know, to read it, it's forty five dollars. I mean, back, it's from nineteen forty nine. This is not cheap. This is not cheap. Yeah, you could probably find it digitally for a lot, you know, less than that or whatever. But yeah, yeah. it's you know, you want to you mentioned the villain not being 
that interesting. Well, yeah, it's the golden age. Villains weren't interesting back then. They were two-dimensional. So I, I don't know. The art was fantastic. That's, I'll just keep coming back to Serge Akuna's art. Just gorgeous. So yeah. anyway, uh, up next we have Titan Beast World Evolution. So this reprints a bunch of um, Beast Boy um, appearances. Teen Titans number six from back in the 60s, like the first volume of Teen Titans, written by Bob Haney, pencils by Bill Molno, inks by George Russo, letters by Stan Starkman. Uh, and then Tales of the Teen Titans number three, that's the limited series from back in the early 80s, written by uh, Marv Wolfman, pencils by George Perez, inks by Gene Day, colors by Adrian. Roy and letters by John Costanza. And then the backup story from action comics, number 1051 that just came out recently written by Leah Williams art by Marguerite Savage letters by Becca Carey. And then we also have uh, from the original who's who uh, the definitive director of the DC universe issue number four, when beast boy went by changeling uh, it has this who's who profile written by uh, Wolfman pencils by Perez and inks by Romeo Tangal. Um, I'm not going to go through any of this stuff. If, if you're a big Beast Boy fan, this might be worth it to you uh, to pick up. What I will say is I'll take this opportunity to talk about Beast Boy as, as a character. Uh, I mentioned before how beloved he is. But what's interesting is for as long as he's been around, uh, there is a lack of consistency with the character. Uh, both in terms of his characterization, in terms, I, I mean, just the fact that he was Beast Boy when he first showed up and he was a member of the Doom Patrol. Oh, maybe he's wasted in the pages of Doom Patrol. I don't know that I've ever read or seen uh, a reason. If I did, I don't recall why uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez decided to sort of resurrect him and have him uh, show up in the pages of the Noon Teen Titans, when they launched it, which was, you know, a wildly successful uh, series in the early 80s, DC's number one selling series, in fact. Um, and it did things that were different than had ever been done in comics before in terms of interpersonal relationships. I mean, really what they did was they turned a superhero team book from being, you know, the typical, let's just focus on the, the supervillains and the battles and what have you and traditional superhero comic into a soap opera. That's what it was. They made it a soap opera. They made they sort of t took a page out of the the, the Marvel uh, handbook in the '60s with what Stan and Jack and uh, Steve Ditko did, and you know, creating characters like the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Hulk and, that had had issues. They had foibles. Um, that's really what Wolfman uh, and uh, and Perez did, and it was wildly successful. And why did they bring Beast Boy in? I, I don't know. And they changed his name to Changeling. Uh, and he had a little bit of a different personality than he had had in the Doom Patrol, uh, a little bit more fun loving, but, you know, still had some tragedy in his past and what have you. Um, and it was that status quo for the longest time. And they had an in reason, in story reason for him changing his name from Beast Boy to Changeling. For, that was when I first discovered him. He was Changeling. But then he eventually went back to Beast Boy. Um, but even look at the Titans and, and how they are problematic we've talked about this with some of the 90s teen characters how they're they're sort of in this limbo because now they've created another generation of young heroes it's sort of the same thing like they were called the new teen titans but how long can you have them around and have them be teens without evolving the characters and again when it comes to beast boy maybe it makes a little more sense because he can alter his appearance it's, he can change shape what have you but when you talk about consistency of 
character and personality. At times he's been a little more morose. At times he's been a little more fun loving, but even look, you know, from his name to his look, I mean, there, there are, if, if you look at the way he was drawn by Perez like on the screen right now, and then compare that to the way he was drawn by Brett Booth uh, in the, um, in the new 52 teen Titans. And then look at how Kenneth Roquefort drew him when he did the book. It's like, he looks other than having green skin. He looks completely different. Sometimes he looks more human uh, with like regular ears. And other times he's got like the big pointy, like Spock ears. Like it, he, he's just been handled so inconsistently. Um, and I don't know that anybody's ever said, okay, this is the definitive run. This is what you, if you want to understand who beast boy is, go read this, even though they've tried to do it at various times, it, it hasn't been really successful. And I do find it sort of telling that the Tales of the Teen Titans um, one-shots that we've got that have focused on characters, the least successful of, of those was the Beast Boy one. Um, and it didn't really go back and ex explore uh, his past in a, in a way that really made sense or establish who he is now outside of, and you mentioned it earlier, Rocky, outside of, you know, wh who was the stabilizing force, who was like the stabilizing influence in that book for him? Oh, it was Raven. It was his, it was his uh, relationship with Raven. So what's the, like the most defining stable uh, characteristic of Beast Boy that you can count on right now that he's Raven's boyfriend? Like how lame is that uh, for a character that's been around as long as Beast Boy has been around? Um, so anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. I just feel like he's been done dirty and uh, maybe this, this Beast World story will, will help establish him um, with a little more consistency that people can have going forward. But I mean, look at things like the way he was treated in the, the future state um, Titans Academy stories or future state team uh, Titan story. And then the way he was in Titans Academy and then he's merged with cyborg and then he's not, and he loses his eye. Like people complain about Wally West getting the shaft. Beast boys like Wally West, hold my beer. Yeah. So anyway, uh, like I said, I'll get off my soapbox. Well, give you any uh, chance to give us any thoughts I'll, on this? I'll, I'll, I'll temporarily get on my soapbox. I mean, uh, a Deathstroke shoots him in the head, and uh, of course, that was in Dark Crisis. And somehow, Deathstroke, who, who rarely misses, somehow just shot him in the eye. No, I'm pretty sure he had his brains blown out. Uh, it wasn't just shot in the eye. He was he was dead, as far as I was concerned. But but he didn't stay dead, of course, because it's Beast Boy. You know, he's in love with Raven, and they have an audience, and, and I get it. But you know, you talk about inconsistency. This one shot itself is a prime example of that inconsistency. You couldn't get more on a, a more eclectic array of of Beast Boy stories in the, than the his first appearance. I, I'm assuming that is in uh, Teen Titans issue number six, uh, and then and then uh, with the Changeling one one shot back in the day during George the Wolfman Perez era. And then nonsensically adding in Action Comics 1051, which is the first parter, which, which involves Power Girl and Omen working on his mind after post-Deathstroke. Uh, isn't this just going to confuse readers? I, I, I have to tell you, like I, I, I might, you might disagree with me on this. I might stand to be corrected, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell people you don't need to pick this up to enjoy Beast World. You can pick up... I've already read it. Okay, you trust me on this. You can pick up, you can pick up Beast World, the Beast World event number one, and you don't need to read anything uh, leading up to it. 
it, you really don't. It's not it, It's not rocket science. It's not a complicated storyline. All you got to know is that Beast Boy's got beast powers and he can change into any animal. That's all you really need to know. You don't really need to know much else. And this is just, to me, is a, is a desperate money grab that I actually think is going to muddy the waters and just confuse people. It, it's completely unnecessary. And, you know, look, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Enough said. Yeah. Enough said, yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, we have uh, Harley Quinn, Black, White, and Redder. There's three stories here. The first is the Harley Spirit, story by Mateus Lopez and Bilquis Evely. Um, letters by Simon Boland. Uh, then the second story, let me scroll through real quickly. Uh, I don't know why they don't have a consolidated letters page. Second story is Flight, written by Justin Halpern. Art is by Kath Lobo. Letters by Wes Abbott. Uh, and then the last story, let me scroll a little bit faster here. Uh, the last story is called Double Trouble. Story and art by Spearmint. Letters by Josh Reed. Um, again, kind of tired of these limited color palette stories. Uh, the first one by Lopez and, and Evely felt very incomplete. Um, it's a medieval story, Harley getting backhanded by the Joker. I felt like it should come with a trigger warning for, you know, violence against women. It was really quite shocking. And then uh, some witch recruits Harley. They go out to the woods. They have a ceremony um, and say, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be their champion of vengeance. Uh, and then she goes and beats the crap out of the Joker and then it's over, hmm. but it doesn't feel over. It feels like the start of something rather than, uh, but it's a chance to showcase, showcase Bilquis, Evely's art, um, which uh, again, it's, it's great. You know, as much as I say, it, I'm tired of the limited color palette. Lisa gives us, gives us a chance to see her rendering, which is gorgeous. Um, the second story is pretty fun. Actually, it's almost like a, a take on, Harley Quinn and Con Air. She's on this uh, airplane prison transport and all hell breaks loose. That one's actually pretty funny. Um, probably the one that, that I enjoyed the most. And then the last one is is Harley Quinn and Ivy and Ivy dealing with uh, a person on social media that's impersonating her, basically. Uh, that one was just kind of eh. So I, these aren't for me. I'm not a Harley fan. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm over these limited color palette type stories, but I don't know. You have anything to add? Uh, I, I do. And uh, I, I generally agree with you. I will say though, though every now and then, and Bill Chris Everly's uh, contribution here uh, to the story, uh, the Harley spirit, the story by uh, Matias Lopez and Bill and Bill Chris Everly. She did the story, and, but Bill Chris Everly's art. This is absolutely gorgeous. Every now and then I read something like this. I would love this to be black label. I would love a black label uh, Harley story. I would love to have, I'd like, I feel that this was an incomplete story. It's the Harley spirit. It's set in the, almost like the middle ages. It's, I, this is one of the most beautiful uses of just like pencils and the use of the red and the Harley spirits in red. And it for the first three pages, it's outlined in this elaborate medieval like symbols and, and red. And then just after the, the Joker character hits the, this, the Harley character in this medieval story, the red and the and, and ornate uh ornate framing of the of the panels disappears at just when she uh 
the Joker shatters her nose and sort of it's, it's symbolizing almost like a loss of innocence that it's no longer funny that it's that there's something more to say it, I, I really like the 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 art itself conveyed a story. You almost didn't need, it's so funny because when I looked at it, I, I pretend I ignore the dialogue. You can get the gist of the story just by looking at the pictures with Bill Chris Everly's art. It's really good. It, I think it's really good. And at the end, it's, it, it, they call upon this dark Harley spirit this, and this almost like evil looking Harley spirit that, that becomes a champion of vengeance, which is really kind of odd because you don't associate Harley that way. But it's a very, very different take on Harley, which is what you expect in these anthologies, quite frankly. And, and then it's just sort of like there's this darker version of the Harley in her classic red, red and black and white suit. And then and that it's sort of like it's it, it just, again, the, the ornate framing of the panels comes back in a, with like red in blood red colors and and there's a blood moon on the final page suggesting that that this 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 champion of vengeance which looks a lot like harley quinn will forever be with us and that's how the story ends and i feel like it ended abruptly and uh, i really really liked it the other two stories i thought uh i thought were again just that they were all right uh the one with uh the one with uh, writer Justin Halpern, I thought it was okay enough. Artist Kath Lobo does not a bad job with Harley Quinn on a flight. I thought it was, uh, you know, it was sort of like, uh, you know, what what would happen if you put the Suicide Squad on, Suicide Squad on a domestic flight? I mean, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get chaos. That's exactly what happened. Surprise, surprise. I can't believe Amanda Waller would allow that to happen. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the the final one, the Double Trouble with uh, Spirit... Uh, Letters by Josh Reed. I, I do like the idea of Harley Quinn, somebody impersonating Harley Quinn on on social media and people mistake the fake Harley for the real Harley and, and the frustrations Harley has trying to get to the truth. I thought it was kind of funny too. Uh, and, but, so the best part is the Bill Crosseveli art. I just wish I didn't have to buy, you know, I, actually between the Bill Crosseveli art and every single, every single one of the, alternate covers all the covers here look amazing i've got two of the covers showed up on on the screen here behind both jason and i if you're watching it on youtube if not there is a beautiful uh, jenny frizen uh cover and there is i'm not even sure if that is uh what what cover is if that's if that's derek chu on the cover but there's there's some really gorgeous covers here david nakamura warren warren lao and uh and Santa Takeda have really some absolutely gorgeous covers. And again, if you're going to do a cover by this Harley Black, uh, Black, White, and Redder series is probably uh, a series to check out. Yeah, I think that Jenny Frizen cover is actually for next the next issue. Uh, but you're right, the Warren Lau cover, fantastic. Um, yeah. David Nakayama cover is a lot of fun as well. And even the main cover, um, mm. which I... I don't remember who did the main cover, but yeah, the main cover is fantastic as well. Uh, it's a Santa Takeda. Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, Santa that's Takeda. Uh, monstrous. I think that's what she draws, uh, what most people will know her from. So anyway, last book we're going to talk about in detail. It's Justice Society number seven, written by Jeff Johns. Marco Santucci is the artist. Yvonne Placencia is on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Bit of a transitional issue. Uh, get a little bit of, uh, of the Harlequin. Uh, we get a a lot of Solomon Grundy, uh, a lot of Salem, the witch girl and uh, how she doesn't get along, how she, uh, with, uh, the current Dr. Fate. 
um, a, a little bit of the, the huntress trying to, to recruit basically to just trying to, you know, now that she's stuck in, in this timeline, she's trying to get to the point uh, where she was in her own timeline. Batman's there to remind her, uh, Hey, you know, this isn't the timeline you were, you were in previously. You may not be able to get there. Um, so it, it's hard to say where this series is going, partly because it takes so long to come out. I mean, it's been out coming out over a year now. We're only on issue seven with yeah. constant delays. It's been robbed of all its momentum. It's still enjoyable when it does come out, but, uh, you know, these aren't the most uh, packed issues in terms of the amount of story we get. Uh, there's plenty of room for the art to breathe, which is fine because the art by Marco Santucci is gorgeous. Uh, although I do miss seeing the, the Ordway art and the um, Mikel Yanid art that we've had in the past. Um, but you know, regardless, whether it's Santucci or Ordway or uh, Mikel Yanid, all, all those artists, I love seeing their art. No exception here with the Santucci art, which is fantastic. Um, but again, just it comes out too sporadically to really mo- maintain any momentum or to really get me invested in the story. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. I kind of doubt it. Um, so it's it's just un- it's just unfortunate. Uh, I, I love if this would come out on a you know biweekly basis. That's how engaged I am, uh, or how how great the story is. But it's hard to stay engaged when it comes out once every three months. So, yeah, it just is what it is. What, what were your thoughts? I, I, I thought it was funny. This is kind of a recruitment issue because Huntress, Huntress last issue was talking about Huntress wants to re- recruit new members to the Justice Society because in her timeline, which is now erased, because remember that th- this Huntress, i.e. daughter of Batman uh, in, a de- in another timeline that doesn't exist. 20 years from now, recruited a different, recruited a bunch of villains to join the Justice Society. And so in all her infinite wisdom, she figures that, well, let's recruit these villains now. Well, I'm, I'm a little surprised that there wasn't somebody who was maybe sober in the room that said, are you insane? I mean, timing is important when you recruit people. I mean, you don't, I mean, there are things that, you know, I was a angrier. I was an angrier person with a little bit more flaws than I have now. Twenty five years ago, I'm ashamed to admit. You know, there are certain things you wouldn't want to have uh, approached me with back in the day. And you know, I'm a little bit calmer now that I'm older and dare I say wiser. You know, the the fact that Huntress thinks and 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 Batman, her I guess father is you know he's along for the ride and Salem goes along and yeah no problem we're going to recruit Solomon Grundy to join the Justice Society <laughs> I mean we've seen it maybe before Solomon Grundy is kind of an anti-hero he's kind of a mindless monster but he's had a, he has his gent- more gentler moments I get it but you know I one of the best lines I thought in the series is uh, Salem said you know Salem has this plan to inca- incapacitate and capture uh, Solomon Grundy that fails he ends up getting burned because one of her spells gone awry and she goes well, what did you expect? It's Saturday. As a reference to the Solomon Grundy poem, you know, Solomon Grundy died on a Saturday. Most people just think that he was born on a Monday. Well, he also died on one of the days of the week, too. Unfortunately, it appears to have been Saturday. But uh, in any event, th- this recruitment issue, I thought, was kind of meh. I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. Clearly, this is moving toward a, a, a new justice society to rock the boat a little bit. But as you said, uh, the you know, uh, 
it's we're long past. I'm long past having patience for Jeff Johns. I'm absolutely loving what he's doing over with with Image with his own with his own universe there. I'm I'm all for it. Uh, the Geiger and all that jazz. I love the world he's building. But I mean, let's face it. I mean, we should make a prediction right now. Next year at this time, next November 2024, what issue of Justice Society will will we be on? Will it be on, we should be on issue 19 by then, but I bet you we'll be on issue 11. Like, I mean, every two or three months we get an issue of Justice Society. This is not a story make. And uh, Jeff Johns, I love you, but uh, Johns, if you can't commit uh, to a regular schedule, we're kind of wasting our time here and... It's too bad because Gene Loring is back here. Dr. Midnight talks to Gene Loring. And the last time I saw Gene Loring, she was in prison following identity crisis. You know, where she, I mean, she, she killed, she made elongated man. Uh, I mean, what she did to Eli, uh, elongated man's wife and that, that identity crisis series. My God, Gene Loring shows up and talk of Eclipso. And this is kind of cool stuff. And you know, Jeff Johns, damn him, damn him, damn him. He's such a, you know, he, he knows uh, as a, he's so intimately knowledgeable uh, of DC characters and lore. He knows how to capture my interest. But damn it, Johns, I need you to be more committed to DC if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, plant all these fantastic ideas, but only give us a comic book every three months. Dare I say I'm frustrated. I, I enjoyed this issue, but knowing that we're probably not going to get one for another three months, just makes me kind of shake my head, you know, but it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, issue 11. So yeah, that, that would be basically <laughs> one, one every, every three months. Three months yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm being cynical. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, that's exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, part, part of me thinks I'll just cancel it, but you know, before it, <laughs> it, it gets to that point. Uh, Oh, so yeah, I mean, issue one came out. <laughs> issue one came out last November, so uh, we're 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 you know it took a year for seven issues. Jesus, um, So I mean, on that based on that schedule, we'd be on issue fourteen, <laughs> a little better than eleven, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean that's the thing. We got number one came out in November, and then number two came out in January. And then we skipped February, then then we had March, then we skipped April, and we had May, and then we skipped June and July, and we had August, and then we had September, and then we skipped October, and we had November, and we're supposed wow. to have issue eight in December, and we're supposed to have issue nine in February, and number ten is yet to be determined. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. Anyway, that does it for the, uh, the issues we're going to talk about in detail. There are some uh, collections, Poison Ivy Volume 2, which collects the G. Willow Wilson series, uh, specifically issues 7 through 12. That's out. We also have, speaking of Green Lantern, uh, Kyle Rayner. We've got uh, a compendium, basically with his early adventures. It collects... Green Lantern Zero and 48 through 65, 48 being basically his first appearance. Um, so 48 through 65, uh, Rebels 94, number one, New Teen Titans 116 and 117, 124, 125, Guy Gardner Warrior 27 through 28, Dark Stars 34, and Damage number 16. So the reason it has so many of those other random series is because he was a new character. What do you do with a new character? You guest star him in a bunch of other books so you can get people interested in 
going and picking up the uh, the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern book. Uh, we've also have Trial of the Amazons trade paperback. It collects uh, a bunch of the Trial of Amazon tie-ins and one-shots. Uh, neither Rocky nor I would recommend you uh, pick that up. It's <laughs> it's a tough it's a tough it's a tough read, but if you're yeah. so inclined, check it out. And then uh, the last thing that I want to mention, not for the faint of heart, with a five hundred dollar gift tag, but there is a Sandman Morpheus Helm Masterpiece Edition hardcover. So this collects the entire uh, Sandman saga, one through seventy-five. Uh, as well as Sandman the Dream Hunter, Sandman Endless Nights, Sandman Overture. And they f- they fit together on this book stand, which is uh, a-, a detailed bone snout and uh, helmet of Sandman. Uh, just go check it out for yourself. Like, like if you're a Sandman fan, um, you're going to be interested in-, in seeing this and maybe you'll be tempted get yourself an early Christmas present, but yeah, 500 bucks, not, uh, not cheap. So, uh, those are the collected, uh, editions that are out this week. So, uh, moment of truth, Rocky, what do you have for Uh, your, uh, yeah, I've been, uh, as you've been talking there, I am, I've got to, I've got to go with, uh, I have to go with Batman off world. Uh, it's just because it was just, it felt like a breath of fresh air to me. It, it was a lot of fun. And uh, it's the one thing where I, and ironically enough, it was the one thumbnail I forgot to actually do. But uh, Batman Offworld is my pick of the week. What about you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to agree. It was a breath of fresh air. It was so ridiculously over the top and, and, and absolutely illogical. But uh, completely fun, completely... Uh, amazing. The art was fantastic. Color work was great. Um, you know, part of it, I, I think the, the fact that I went out of my way not to read up on anything and just took it um, so I could be completely surprised. And yeah, it was just a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always. Big week. Again, happy Thanksgiving to all that celebrate. Uh, be sure you uh, head over to YouTube if you're listening to the audio-only version. Uh, I certainly appreciate that. But head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell. Leave some comments below. Be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any of uh, the content. Conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube, want to be sure not to miss out on any of the other uh, Comic Source audio-only content or go back and listen to the thousands and th- uh, thousands of episodes uh, from the Comic Source that are out there already. Uh, just go to wherever you get your podcast to a search for the comic source and uh, subscribe. So we appreciate the support as always, everyone. And we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. 
All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.